I don't miss the meetings about meetings about meetings. I had six head coaches in 14 years. Culturally, we were probably lost for a few years. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neve Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, we're getting into our flow this morning. Uh, Owen is here. Hey, Jer. Nathan is here. Good morning. How are you, Nathan? I'm very well. How are you? The Liverpool uh, reaction over the last week has been, oh, Virgil van Dijk, greatest defender of all time, 60 not out, what a record. Fabinho, this team is even better than the team that won the league and the team that won the Champions League. They were, they were smelling themselves, as somebody said in the show yesterday or the day before I was like that was an interesting turn of phrase I must steal that they were smelling themselves a bit and then that's what happens you, you get caught last night like they did were they lucky to get through or on balance actually were the chances they missed about even what, what's, what happened last night uh, I think the chances they missed were about even they, they probably were smelling themselves a little bit they did seem to be a little bit casual in how they approached the game they obviously had a 2-0 lead from the first leg and there is still a bit with Liverpool when they're not all at it that they can be exposed a little bit more easily. But again, they created any amount of chances. They hit the woodwork three times. Mo Salah hit the post twice. They had three or four other guilt-edged chances to score in that game, which would have killed it off straight away. It would have been an interesting night if Alexis Sanchez hadn't been sent off within a couple of minutes of Lautaro Martinez scoring this absolute wonder goal. Then we might have had a fascinating final half an hour. But Liverpool weren't at their very best. Sometimes you've got to scrape through. If they play like that against Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, Bayern Munich in the knockout stage, they'll get beaten, they'll get knocked out. But you would expect, uh, even Anfield, it wasn't one of those great European nights at Anfield. It never felt like one of those great European nights at Anfield. It felt as though people around the ground thought the job was done, that there was a, maybe that general disrespect that's there for Syria at the moment, that they weren't expecting Inter Milan to come and pull off one of the great European comebacks. They thought that, they were thinking about the quarterfinal draw and who Liverpool are going to get in it and that seemed to feed down into the players a little bit as well but I would agree that I think Liverpool's squad right now is the strongest squad that Jurgen Klopp has had since he arrived at the club the depth that he has when you look at the Carabao Cup final and Joe Gomez who was such a instrumental part of the championship winning side you know, didn't even make the squad that day despite being fully fit Harvey Elliott wasn't in it initially there is suddenly quite a lot of options for Jurgen Klopp uh, like obviously when you look at the scoreboard and having a one goal cushion it kind of gives a sense that they scraped through but I'm, I'm not sure that's the case like I think sometimes at the back Liverpool given obviously the high line that they play and, and, and given the way that they defend it sort of gives off this mirage that the opposition team had a lot of opportunities and they didn't like even the goal that Inter Milan scored last night wasn't really a chance like I'd love to know what the XG was on, on Martinez's goal because it's one of those that don't get scored and people are criticising Van Dijk for standing off him a little bit dude's not going to score from there on the, on the well, majority he did, of he did but like these things happen in football sometimes and I just think that you know there is this this criticism of of Liverpool of, of being quite open at the back recently and I think that's fair enough but I, I think that they are more than adept at being able to handle that, that what uh, happens if somebody springs the offside trap in the Champions League final and it's like well it worked all season except in the biggest game when a good team a really truly great team or when it's against Mbappe who understands how the, the high line works and do you know what I mean it's like it's grand against Danny Ings but maybe when it comes to 
Kylian Mbappe, he won't be running offside as often. Yeah, well, let's let's have that conversation then. But right now, I think it seems pretty fine. Like I don't think that there is any sort of issue at the back there. I, I think that. Well, we've been having this conversation for years. Yeah, Liverpool play a high line and play it unbelievably well because they want to press high up the pitch. It relies on their front three players putting enormous pressure on the opposition's defence so that every time they clear the ball, they can't pick out a long-range pass to a Kylian Mbappe or a Danny Ings that all they end up doing is giving the ball back to Van Dijk and Matty Piccinate on the halfway line and Liverpool go again. That is why they play the, ha- the high line. We know that. It's the way Jurgen Klopp wants them to press. There is a risk attached to it. And the one thing I do find is that it, it does give the other side a bit of momentum that maybe isn't really there. Again, as Owen says, we talk about chances. Often you see at halftime against Liverpool chances the opposition have created, but three or four of them might have been offside. So not really chances that were created. Do they get counted in the, the chances stats? Or you mean no, you're watching the video they back? Don't, they don't. They don't. The uh, test, yeah. <clears throat> they, and, I, and they're not, because if the, if the linesman, part of the problem for Liverpool, obviously, is that the linesman waits and waits and waits. So it'll end up looking like a real opportunity. But the, okay. the sense that Klopp should change and suddenly play it deeper and not go with an off, I, I think everything would fall apart. Well, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not saying, saying that. Yeah. Like, and I, 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 all I'm saying is that like, it's just even in terms of like how you, how you kind of like feel about watching Liverpool at the moment, as if, is there any jeopardy? And it, it sometimes feels that the idea of jeopardy is just an idea, that actually what they're doing at the back, they are in control. And well, they know exactly yeah. what they're doing. Okay. Uh, and look, the, you can't can't take any uh, micro trends from a couple of games recently where they, they've blitzed teams and looked really good and, and scored loads. And then there's been other games where they have looked a little bit lax. And for whatever reason, that seems to be in the squad. I, I do wonder if they don't win this league, if they're going to regret that period of time where they allowed the gap to Man City to get so big. Because... Manchester City are going to buy a striker. We know that. We know that that he has said it already. Maybe he leaves. Maybe that's what. Maybe that's the thing that evens this thing back up in the future, and, and Man City become a club who have less long-term strategic genius in charge. But like that's you know it's putting your hat on on an event that won't happen. They definitely will buy a striker next season, and this was a year for this Liverpool team, who they keep telling us are better than the other teams that won the league and won the Champions League to actually put it up to City more like allowing City to get that lead I remember having you on one Wednesday morning maybe two or three months back and you were like well this league is done we, we always knew that Manchester City had it in them to do this and I was like well Liverpool were a bit flaky to allow this to happen and I still think Liverpool were a bit flaky and I still think there's still a little bit of flakiness in the team when they're not quite sure what the identity is where are we the Tiago team or are we the non-Tiago team and it's horses for courses a little bit so I don't know I just I'm but they've lost twice all season, so they're not that flaky. Hey, Manchester City are setting a standard over the last three or four years that, that nobody has done before in terms of the amount of points you need to go and win a title. So, yeah, I, Liverpool may well have regrets, and we don't know what happened behind the scenes with Jurgen Klopp. Did he get players he wanted during the summer? Like, look at the impact Luis Diaz has made already. If you have Luis Diaz in that Christmas period, which if they don't win the league will be the one that cost them where they drop points in three straight games. If you have Luis Diaz there to come in as a fresh pair of legs, does that change things? Maybe, maybe it does. But they are going up against one of the all-time great sides, which makes it <laughs> incredibly difficult because you can't afford to slip up. And they've done really well over the last while to stick at it, to keep City under pressure, to, to put it in a situation where maybe when they go to the Etihad in a month's time, 
they will still have a chance of winning the title. But they're not they're not the perfect side, but then neither are Manchester City. Yeah, like City don't have that number nine. I, Liverpool couldn't do much more, and I think they're pretty sure of their identity. Yeah, they're trying to have a second way of playing at times with Thiago, but even when Thiago's playing, it, it hasn't dramatically changed. It, it, it changes how they hold on to the ball a little bit more. And that's a change over three or four years that they hold on to the ball better than they did. But I still think it's that high press, the intensity of the front three setting the tone for everybody else. Like, what's the identity? Like, what, when the story is told to this Manchester City team at the end of the season, if they win this league, what will the story of it be? Will it be the Bernardo Silva team, which it was at the start of the year? A striker or is it, or is it the Kevin De Bruyne team that it becomes now? Like, I mean, the identity of Liverpool is pretty easy to nail down. It's the Mo Salah team. They've got the best player in the world and everything that they've done in the Premier League that's been good this season has been pinned on Mo Salah. I think it's unfair to suggest that the, the midfield having been chopped and changed um, as some sort of, it speaks to some sort of lack of identity in, in Liverpool because you could look at, at Manchester City and, uh, and the changes that they've made and, and they've been quite similar actually. Well, uh, I don't know if they've been similar. I think that um, them not having a striker means that they are a team of the, those forwards whoever it is in and whatever period of time is on the top of their game because you know you'd say De Bruyne I would say Maris has been as good this season as anybody that they've had and he's been consistently good he's been second fiddle all the time but he's been a consistent second fiddle and uh, you know world class at that level so I, look I, I'm, we, are, we are nitpicking here obviously but at the end of the season what does success look like for Liverpool now having said that they are a better team they have a better squad than they have before they have to win they have to win another trophy a bigger one than the one they've won yeah and there's no point in a decade's time when we're looking back at this and Liverpool reflecting on the Jurgen Klopp here and saying oh weren't we just unlucky that Manchester City were there at the same time they do need to win trophies to reflect how good they have been a Champions League a Premier League a Carabao Cup is great but is there even more greatness there and there is still a chance they go and win the Champions League this season there is still a chance I still have City as strong favourites to win the Premier League but it's hard to see what more they can do without going and doing what Manchester City did last season which is not sign a striker but still spend 100 million on Jack Grealish who has had it's got better over the last few weeks since he's come back from injury but hasn't had a massive impact and City have been able to afford spending 100 million pounds on a player who hasn't transform their team Liverpool can't afford to do that well so. they could have they chose not to their ownership chooses not to invest like their net spend well, we, know, we know it's a, it's a strategic their, their, ownership is, their ownership is not a nation state essentially no so. but, but come on neither is Manchester United and they've managed to spend a billion over the last while like this whole kind of oh Liverpool couldn't afford to sign players it's not true they chose not to their ownership chose not to whoever was making the argument to John W. Henry did not win that argument like that's that's the case of that it's not like oh we couldn't have signed Grealish they could have signed Grealish if they wanted 100 million they could go and sign Kylian Mbappe they could go and sign anybody in world football they are rich enough to be able to do that and to absorb that we've seen they spent the money and Alisson we've seen they spent the money uh, on on whoever in the past Van Dijk and Salah at, at the time like they've got plenty of money they choose not to spend it yeah and uh, I know the argument that always comes back from Liverpool supporters is that the Alisson Van Dijk came from the Coutinho sale so that they've never had a track record of spending that sort of money but I've made the point before that Liverpool won the league not because of signing Salah or Mane and improving the Klopp got they won the league because they signed the two best players in the world in their position arguably 
in Allison and Virgil van Dijk and are they willing to go and do that again in a different position so are they in the mix for Erling Haaland it doesn't seem so are they in the mix for Kylian Mbappe it doesn't seem so so if Jurgen Klopp he would be well within his rights to be throwing his toys out of the pram saying look what I have done I have brought your club back why aren't you giving me these players look what happened when you spent 70 million on Virgil van Dijk or on Allison. I made them even better again I brought a Champions League a Premier League title give me the money but from the outside, that doesn't seem to be how Klopp approaches things. He seems happy to bring in a Luis Diaz and make him better. Be it we're working off you know, four or five games. But again, bringing him in for not 80, 90 million, not the finished article and making him better over two or three years and enjoys that challenge. But it does mean that when it comes down to a Premier League title race, it'll get to 90 points. That's where your mm-hmm. Kylian Mbappe can come in quite handy. Still, still forty million pounds. You know they they shelled out on them. It's not it's not a, a huge degree of of money balling it. I think they were pretty certain that this this thing was going to um, be 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 a home run almost. Like and they did sign Kanate last summer as well, which was one of the issues that they had last season. Was where's the depth at centre back when the injuries happen? So there was a bit of remedial action. I'm not sure if in hindsight, I mean that that, that they'd look back on some of the business they've done over the last twelve months and say, God, we really regret it because. They win their game in hand. They're three points off Manchester City. And Manchester City, as we've already discussed, have been heralded as uh, sleepwalking through the league and still winning a little canter. Hmm. All right, we'll come back to this a little bit later on. If you've got a view on it, you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream, uh, youtube.com forward slash off the ball. <clears throat> Remember to hit subscribe on the YouTube button. Uh, so Roddy Collins is going to join us at 8 o'clock to talk about the richest five-a-side football tournament in the world. Maybe, maybe not, but definitely uh, one of them anyway. Fiona Hayes is going to join us to talk to uh, rugby. Johnny Sexton's new deal is up for discussion at ten past eight. Razzie Watch at half past eight. So we'll get the view from South Africa about uh, Razzie saying he didn't leak the video. Definitely did not leak the video. It, it wasn't me. Well, sure. I, I, how did I benefit from it? Except from putting massive amounts of pressure on the uh, referee in the second test, which all uh, came home to bear. Uh, John Duggan at 8.40 with this week's version of Virtual Insanity. We're talking to uh, the Irish people who have set up a gym in Palestine. Graham Hunter at 10 past nine. Uh, we'll bring some Brian Driscoll goodness at half past nine this morning. But at 7.44, this is OTBAM and OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. A very interesting stuff from Rory McIlroy in the press conference yesterday, which I saw in one of the papers. Um, it might actually be in The Sun where he was talking about he would like there to be some transparency when it comes to disciplinary matters in golf for suspensions to be announced. It's like, <clears throat> are there any suspensions in the past that haven't been announced? I mean, there was certainly wild speculation about some of the best golfers in the world being suspended for various issues, which never have come to light officially because the PGA Tour doesn't believe that uh, justice done uh, in private is um, justice denied. They think that it's fine. It's our, it's our tour. We can do what we want, which is basically what Phil Mickelson was saying. So there's a, there's a suggestion that Phil Mickelson will be suspended or has been suspended. We don't know. And we're not sure what the crack is. No. And golf has changed its rules around suspensions. So up until 2017, uh, recreational drug suspensions were never made public. So you could just disappear for three months or six months and maybe take some private time for yourself and nobody would ever know why. Uh, They have changed that, but there haven't been any high-profile players ever named. And Phil Mickelson, uh, I'm sure, has violated some codes of the PGA Tour by trying to break up the entire PGA Tour. Uh, In his statement, said he was taking some time away from the game of golf, which immediately raised alarm bells of, 
you're taking time away or you're being told to take time away. But even, even what Phil Mickelson has done in trying to destroy all the work of the PGA Tour over many decades, the PGA Tour and Jay Monaghan, the commissioner, is not willing to come out publicly and say, yes, do you know what? Trying to wreck the job that I've done, that gets you a six-month ban. That's a six-month ban right there. Don't come back. He's going to miss the players. 20 million quid on offer at the players this week. Going to miss that. Going to miss the PGA. Still on for the career Grand Slam. No, he's not going to the US Open. Not going to defend his PGA title. That's the punishment that you get. That is what happens if you screw with the PGA Tour. No, for some reason, the PGA Tour has still decided we're never going to tell you. And they're, they're making a point of saying this is a private matter. If there, if there is ongoing or if there's future disciplinary action, I'm not going to tell you about it. McElroy's like, that's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. Tell everybody. Well, McElroy is the head of the Players Committee and in the press conference yesterday basically said that they need to be more transparent. Like McElroy, three, four years ago, was talking about the drug side of it and how you know, a player could be taking human growth hormone and nobody would ever know about this. It could be banned for it. And the other competitors wouldn't have ever been told about it, which you can understand has been one of the best players in the world. If one of your contemporaries suddenly came of back that, and looking you don't know huge. About it. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, Phil Mickelson isn't the only golfer in the world who hasn't played a golf tournament in quite a while and who isn't playing at the Players' Championship this week. There's a lot of players who uh, take time away, who have little injuries. And, again, it raises a doubt on everybody. That is the part of the problem here. Actually, it does raise a doubt that if a player ends up having a sort of specific three-month or six-month absence, suddenly everybody raises a few eyebrows. So McElroy is saying that, as part of his work in the Players' Advisory Council, that they are going to be lobbying the PGA Tour board to change this to have a bit more transparency we should hasten, hasten transparency Jay, in golf eh? yeah Jay Monaghan has said that uh, he hasn't had any conversations with Mickelson and so therefore this you know he stepped away of his own accord is what uh, Jay Monaghan said which isn't uh, we didn't suspend him because you know you can I emailed him to tell him he's suspended as opposed to we had a conversation about it but he, he needs Phil to be contrite the ball is in his court I would welcome a phone call from him listen he's a player that's won 45 times on the tour He's inspired a lot of people and helped grow this tour, his tour. So as difficult as it is to read some of the things that were said, ultimately a conversation will be had when he's ready, and I will be ready. Well, Jay Monaghan was like the cat who got the cream at the press conference oh. yesterday. It was his uh, victory tour. They have seen off, for now, the challenge of the Saudi Golf League, and he's going to enjoy every minute of it. Can but- I ask you, I'll just on that, right? Did Mickelson blow the whole thing up because of what he said? So if that, if that hadn't happened, would everybody have actually been happy enough to go and take the money? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that line that keeps coming up of he said the quiet part out loud. Has it, the- or, or was there a possibility they'd already lost and that there, or they'd already won in that they were using this to get more money and stuff like the PIP was a, a step in the right direction and that actually they were getting more power? Like, I, I'm just... From the, the distance of the, 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 the gory details were obviously so sensational of what Mickelson was saying. Like, strategically, did he, did he, you know, is he as thick as everybody's making out to be? Like, or actually, had he already won the bit that he wanted to win? We were never going to go with them anyway. Seemed to be the undercurrent and the vibe of like, well, we know they killed Khashoggi. So, actually, they were just using you doing it to wedge a, a more power for themselves and they seem to get some stuff some stuff from the PGA Tour well I think there were two different sides to this one was the quiet soft leverage that was being used by 
Rory McIlroy and the young players on the PGA Tour, they never committed. They never said anything positive about the rival tours, but were constantly in Jay Monaghan's ear and getting increases, vast, vast increases. While on the other side, you had the slightly older cohort led by Phil Mickelson, and he brought some of the younger players in, it seems like a... Bryson DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson, Jason Kokrak, but also Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter, players in their 40s who'd be big names but aren't that competitive. And they were the players who it seemed were most attracted to this because they're not realistically going to be competing for major titles on a regular basis. They're not going to be winning 20 million a year, but here they've been offered 30, 40, 50 million straight up. So they were the ones who were most interested. Now, could you have a sustainable tour based on those players? That was the biggest issue here, that you could because it was Saudi money. So they didn't need to make any money out of this. They didn't yeah. need a billion dollar deal like the PGA Tour had. All they needed was recognizable names, Phil Mickelson going around the world, shilling for them. So that's all they needed out of this. But the real power broker and the one who comes out best is McElroy and that younger generation because Jay Monaghan said yesterday almost all the best young players in the world are under the age of 30. All of them have committed to their future. And this week is the prime example of that sort of soft leveraging that they have used price one this week is absolutely insane 20 million quid price one the winner this week 3.6 million dollars it is the highest ever winner's check that's going to be handed out in the history of golf and that has come not because the pga tour have suddenly decided we have a billion dollar deal it's come because of the rivalries that are there and what they've been pushed into yeah and and the money from saudi has actually helped the the pga tour absolutely like that there's no ifs ands or buts about it i do want to move on and talk about the tennis because um, people will remember Alexander Zverev, who absolutely whacked a, rack, a racket off the umpire's chair, missing the umpire's foot by a hair's breadth, by the you know the width of a tennis ball. Um, and you think, okay, well he's going to face a long ban for this, right? You, you you walk over to the umpire's chair and you bang the chair he's sitting on with no regard for whether or not you're going to hit him or not. It's like a complete fluke that you don't hit him because you are lashing out in anger. This isn't one of your perfectly controlled topspins down the line. Uh, this is a smash. And the racket um, could have could have done significant damage. You know, I'm not saying it would have broken his foot or anything, but you know, we might be talking about ligaments. It could have been, it could have been physical injury. So you would expect, because it, the respect for referees is like, written into the core of the values of all the sports all the sports bullshit about the core values being oh respect for referees oh give respect get respect so how, do you know do, do you, you both know what the suspension he got do you know what the answer is Nathan do you have you read say, this? I haven't read this I'm going to say a month yesterday's punishment an 8 week ban and a fine of $25,000 suspended for 12 months so nothing Nothing. It's a suspended sentence. It's like da, 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 I'm free to go. Thanks very much. Twenty five grand. I spit twenty five grand. Uh, so that's it. That's it. Nothing. A little bit of money for the multimillionaire tennis player for lashing out and hitting the umpire's chair. Tennis is screwed. Why? You can't do this. You can't oh, do this. Clearly, they've, you can. They've got no control. There's an ongoing investigation into allegations, very serious allegations of domestic abuse against Alexander Zverev. Now, they have seen to be soft on him when it comes to disciplinary matters where he has attacked the the chair of the umpire. And this isn't like, you know, around the bottom of the chair. It was like right there where he was sitting. You can see on the video, the super slow-mo is what you need to make sure that he didn't actually hit him. 
it's almost um, the second the the difficult PR move here, in a way. It would like would have been such an easy win for for tennis authorities to be like six months, yeah, six months, and actually uphold the ban. So it's a it's a it's a strange one, isn't it? Well, is it again like golf, where it's an individual sport, and while they may not own the tour, the players essentially run the tour, and that there is a leniency there because other players, uh, and he is one of the best in the world, but even more senior players look at these examples and say, no, like the, he's he's one of our guys, he is one of our. One of our when you're on this tour, we protect our own. Yeah, well, and, you know, eventually all that kind of stuff comes home to roost because people don't like it. People don't like when nasty people reveal their characters to you. It's not, it's not a good look. Um, Serena Williams said, there's absolutely a double standard. I would probably be in jail if I did that. And you, you remember, like... Serena obviously not perfect had her issues um, but certainly would have been punished more significantly than what Zverev has been done here absolute nonsense from the tennis authorities like well it was the aggression it was when you watched it first you thought we've all seen players have a go at umpires through the years uh, Serena Williams included and it was more the verbal abuse that was the problem but here you you did worry for the umpire that was in uh you know, a isolated position high up in that chair that actually Zara was going to do something incredibly stupid. Uh, so to get a suspended sentence, like maybe it's in the protocol, set down a first offence, all that sort of stuff, that this is how you get away with it. But I, I do feel in the individual sports, they are often an awful lot softer in terms of their punishments. Apparently the ATP rulebook uh, allows for an immediate suspension of between 21 days and one year. So it's not like that they've... Uh been hamstrung by what's been uh, available to them. Um, no. Got Pam Shriver coming out saying, name another sport that wouldn't protect its officials who have been physically attacked and intimidated by a competitor by serving a probation versus a suspension. What am I missing? I dare say there's a lot of other sports who might have done something similar, maybe. Uh, maybe I mean, uh, this is like, true, but like, I, I think. I think maybe, maybe a sport who does punish stars. people for attacking an official. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. Jim Connolly would say he got uh, hung out to dry more for what he did, which was nowhere near as, as bad. Uh, one last thing Everton apparently don't have clauses. This is the Telegraph reporting today that Everton don't have relegation clauses in many of the contracts. The club deny this. But sources uh, have revealed to the Telegraph that they don't have relegation clauses in the contracts of many of their highest earners. And then they started to list off all of the players who are on 100 grand a week or more. Because we've been told in the past, we had Mark Lawrence on, and he was saying, you would not believe the money that some of those players that Everton are on. You would not believe it. I think he repeated it three times. Because we had assumed 100 grand a week. And there was, I, I don't know, certainly since then, other people have been in touch with us to say, their sources tell them that the 100 grand a week is conservative. 100 grand a week might be the basic, but there's probably on top of that, showing up for training, reporting alive and well at the start of the season, win bonuses, which obviously aren't being paid very often at the moment, but uh, there's probably minutes and performance bonuses built in. And so maybe some of them, the salaries might be up around, when you take everything into account, 170 or 180 grand a week. And there are no clauses that uh, if we go down to the championship, we're not going to pay you Premier League wages. We're going to pay you championship wages. Again, just going to highlight how badly run a club Everton has been. And now they have Frank Lampard, who was popular with the fans as the manager. So maybe it's, maybe it's on the fans. It's all, it's all their fault. Do Liverpool and Manchester City have relegation clauses in their players' contracts? 
I don't know, I presume... I I'm, I'm asking because I wonder is part of Everton's they, problem that they have not seen themselves at that level, but they have always been looking up, and that's part of the sell, that if you're talking to Yeri Mina and you're saying, well, we're going to stick in a relegation clause because you know, it's, it's always the possibility around here. Well, Yeri Mina's going, whoa, I, I prefer the old Champions League bonus clause here. Well, I was going to say, maybe there's not a Champions League bonus clause for the Liverpool Man City players, but there might be, you don't qualify for the Champions League, you get less money. There might be those clauses. Possibly. Uh, I, I'm not altogether shocked that Everton don't have relegation clauses, but it does just add up to there's no team who would suffer more financially if they were to go down than Everton with what's going on with Usmanov, the potential move, or not even the potential move, the move to the new stadium, the commitments that the club has financially. It would be an utter disaster. And there are no guarantees. This is the old cliche. There are no guarantees that Everton, even with that squad, would come straight back up because six, seven, eight of those players are going to have to leave. They're going to have to get rid of those players off the wage bill. But also a lot of those players are international footballers. There's a World Cup coming up in December. They don't want to be playing championship football. So suddenly Jordan Pickford, Yeri Mina is gone. Alain doesn't want to be there. Decore. Richarlison, Andre Bay, Gomez. Richarlison, uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. They're all supposed to be earning 100 grand. Dominic Calvert-Lewin is a little bit not far behind is what it says in the in the paper. Um, and they say that they lost 150 last year. Wages were 165 million. And obviously they've just lost their sponsorship deals with the Russian companies and the Usmanov Money Inc. That ain't coming back. And uh, the shirt sponsor, Kazoo, is not going to renew for next season. So that's an opportunity for them to get somebody else in. But, you know, if you're not a Premier League team, Everton could be the new Leeds. It, it doesn't look amazing. Like, I mean, you're looking at some of the, the figures and like even just looking at a, a mail piece on it. Uh, they were due to publish their accounts in December for the 2020-2021 season. But they delayed that because they sought clarification from the league over how much of their losses can be offset due to the impact of COVID. So it seems that they've uh, put that on ice just for the time being because they're quite afraid of, of what's going to happen uh, when the truth comes out about what's happened over the last little while. So uh, it's anticipated that it's going to be an, another loss in excess of £100 million, basically. And that will... COVID be enough of a reason maybe uh, maybe that in, in line with Russia they'll be able to make an argument saying listen these are understandable losses but I think there is a, a genuine fear that at some point there could be a, a point deduction coming down the line which we rarely have ever seen uh, in the, the top tier of English football you add to that the prospect of relegation and it's a bit of an, an apocalypse situation in the, the near future for, for Everton it seems next, I, I this, time, this time next year we'll be like can Wayne Rooney keep Everton in the yeah. championship yeah It'll be one of the great stories of English football if he manages to get them over the 12-point deduction that they've suffered. <laughs> it's going to be Rooney's gig, is it? Has your, t- has your team suffered a horrible loss of points? Mm. Wayne Rooney strolls in. And they must have, and it backs up those figures there, over the last five years, lost an insane amount of money in not being able to recoup transfer fees. Like how many of those players, we talk about what Jurgen Klopp has done in improving value. How many players at Everton are better now than they were when they signed for the club or have come through like Dominic Calvert-Lewin is the one aside from that like even Richarlison you know Richarlison screws me over week on week killing oh, me this kid your boy Richarlison <laughs> but they paid 40 million for Richarlison yeah. so yeah. are they going to get more than 40 million yeah. there was a period 18 months ago where you thought actually Newcastle Man United could be a 60-70 million and maybe listen, maybe Newcastle bailed them out 
bail them out and uh, sorry, one last sign Yerry Mina for 50 million. Well, they're not going to. Newcastle, Newcastle aren't being stupid. It, it appears as if they're going to sign the Rudigers of the world who are available for free and pay them the wages and take the risk that way because, you know, you, you sign Rudiger for a season on crazy wages. You can sell him after that first season because you've given him a three or four year deal and the transfer fee was zero. So there's like, there is at least some business sense going into the, the shopping and they're going to be doing it from a position where they're mid-table as opposed to uh, battling relegation after the Eddie Howe turnaround. All right, it's two minutes past eight this morning here on OTBAM. Elite Fives is a 50 grand five-a-side amateur football tournament which takes place this June in the AOL Complex. It's set to be Ireland's biggest five-a-side tournament ever. It's 160 teams. It's over two days and there's 50 grand to the winner. Amazing stuff. Roddy Collins is involved in the launch today. Roddy, good morning to you. Morning, lads. You've just killed me. I mean, you're talking about millions. <coughs> we thought we'd come in with a big, you know, prize money, 65 grand all in. Yeah, that's it. 50 grand for the winners, 10 grand for second, 5 grand for third place. So, uh, we had David Myler on the show last week, and uh, he was saying that he was home one summer, and one of his mates was like, here, could you come down and play a bit of five-a-side? And it turned out it was a league final. And Myler played and they won something like 12-2 and he scored a couple from centre-back. What's the story on ringers in this? Are, are you are you playing yourself? No ringers. No, no ringers. It's, 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 no, it's for junior players, corporates. <laughs> you know, it's for your, your lads in the pub. So there's no... It's elite fives, it's called, but it's no elite players. Right. So... Right, so it's just... It gives Jack everyone Burnham, a chance. It's, it's a two-day festival. Sorry? I had Jack Burnham Wales ready to go on my team. No, sorry, Jack's, Jack's an ambassador, actually, so Jack won't be involved. I don't know if there's a, an exemption for maybe Kenny Cunningham or, you know, overage players, but from all the details are there anyway to be checked out. But uh, no, I think it's a brilliant idea. I mean, when I played back in the day, pardon me, when I played back in the day, in my time, I won a television once. That was it, in a five-side tournament, the Bally, Bally Fairman. But it was always, it was the done team back then, five sides, seven sides, so you go around in a van. But this this is unbelievable. I mean, 50 grand for the winners. Two-day festival in the AOL. I mean, that could be life-changing for a football club, you know? Oh, Junior totally. Club. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, are, you, are, you, are you, is there an over a Masters tournament? Are you still sticking on boots yourself? No, not yet. Not yet. They're looking into that one, you know. But um, <clears throat> get this one out of the way first. Then there could be a Masters. Then there could be a corporate. Then there could be an All-Ireland league where it were it were it were the final so it's, it's just a brilliant idea that's why you got involved you know so no this is the one june <clears throat> two days out in the aol and uh yeah great great concept it is a great concept and uh, we wish them all the very best so with it, with the launch today we'll uh, tweet out details of where you can uh, yeah, get... all, all the all the information is on um elite fives on instagram or um it's on eventbrite.ie on friday you can book your team in then so the details, but as I say, it's 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 unbelievable. Fifty grand for the winners, you know. I know where I'd be down if I got to the final. I'd be splitting at thirty grand each. <laughs> Dummy figures, lads. <laughs> <laughs> a few cards. One all draw. <laughs> Sorry. It'd be like watching uh, Ireland uh, Holland at the World Cup. Yeah, Ireland and Holland. I was at that game. I was at that game. Yeah, <clears throat> and the, the fans were singing England at home. But no, it's great. I mean, I, I just talked with Mock this yesterday. And they said 50 grand. And what they could do with that for Tariq Sobers, maybe one of the kids' pitches or kit, equipment, dressing room, refurbishment. Or then I spoke to a couple of carpets. Yeah, they thought maybe a month away in the Bahamas, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> I, prefer the, I prefer the first Wait. one with the, the kids getting extra... Uh 
playing surface rather than the corporates getting yeah, the money from the Bahamas. I, I said you'd rather go on the last somewhere. <laughs> I will take a trip to the Bahamas too. I don't. I just don't. I don't want to get that uh, get that wrong. Roddy, I, the the League of Ireland um, at the moment, right? There's uh, the game is sold out in Tala. I think four or five days early. Rovers have had record ticket sales for season tickets. We've seen a surge in season ticket sales for all of the clubs. Um, are you feeling the same sense of positivity yes. about the league? The most absolutely, are? yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know. It enhances every game. I've played in empty grounds, many of them, mostly. But um, when you have a crowd, it does enhance the appearance. It, 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 it makes it a better occasion for everybody, for the supporters and for the players, you know. So, I mean, they got daily mount sold out before the season starts, season ticket holders. Now, when we say sold out, they're very small numbers, but it doesn't matter. It would just be more enjoyable if you had bigger stadiums like, <coughs> like Tala, where you would get you know, sold out crowds most week, uh, good performances and, and build. But, you know, but, you know, and I have to throw a damper. And my, my argument is I was in Tolka for the first game with Shells and I really enjoyed what happened on the pitch. But look, lads, it's a dump and daily mounts a dump. And there's other, you know, draw the Finn Herbs. And I've been told to shut up, but we have to keep saying it because we need more grounds to replicate talent and to make it a better day out. That's what we need. And once you get, like, we, every year in every club, <coughs> pardon me, in, in every league in the world, it starts off with great tours and you get crowds in. What keeps them there? You know, mostly the, the result, if it's a home team. But then again, you've got to add to that and say, well, if the weather's inclement, there's other, you know, acti- not activities, but there's other luxuries there that you can enjoy other than the game. And that's where that's where it's always going to fall out, lads. So, sorry for being a the killjoy but no I yeah. think I think it's important I think that's exactly that's exactly right that like it's it's the, the product now outstrips the quality of the environment in which the product is happening the stuff on the pitch is actually the quality has vastly improved the the throughput yeah. of young Irish players coming through playing ball and, and trying to play ball and, and then stepping from the League of Ireland straight into teams in England or Scotland and uh, and, and then ultimately playing for the national team really quickly I think that's yeah, well, all. That's what we want. That's, yeah. I mean, that's what we've done for years. <clears throat> I mean, that's how we developed our international players. You know, a lot of players like Ronnie Wheeler went away maybe 16, 17 years of age. But, you know, it's, how can I say, everything has improved. Quality of player, quality of coach and the whole lot. But unfortunately, the facilities have, have left all that behind. And it's a pity because when you go to a game, like for argument's sake, and I keep going back about the first game in Tolkien. It was one of the most miserable nights ever. You can't blame either club on that one. But if you didn't enjoy football, for argument's sake, if I brought my wife and one of my kids, I mean, I'm there to watch the football. I wanted to see how Damien set up his team and I was very impressed with, with, with that. But other than that, I mean, people with you who aren't looking, <clears throat> who aren't looking at what's on the pitch are thinking, Jesus, this is miserable. You know, what are we coming down here for? And that's the argument they have. But on the pitch... Excellent coaching, kids developing. Yeah, I'm really happy with that. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, there can be a, a concerted effort by all of the clubs to lobby the government for proper funding and resources. Because we see Tala is successful. It worked. It like it has completely transformed what people think about when they're going to a League of Ireland venue and what the expectations are. All the visiting fans come and seeing. Oh, why can't we have this? And that's I, maybe you hope that's some kind of tipping point. Well, I mean. 
last week there was a, uh, an argument over the, the circus in Sligo. Stephen O'Donnell was, was you know, ranting on about that. And rightly so. And I'm ranting on about the stadiums. You know, when, when are we going to start? Like, you know, I hate saying it, lads, but I've got to say it. I mean, I, I made my debut in Finn Herbst uh, in 1978. And honestly, I've been up there in recent years and nothing has changed. You know, just the point I'm trying to make, and you're saying we get a concerted effort, we lobby everyone, and we, we get government grants and the whole lot, but you will find most clubs, and there's been a few grants thrown around, it goes into the budget. Because I, I asked a question one day, many days, uh, when I was up at one of the, 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 the hearings up in the FAI, there was a figure out in the open arena about ground improvements, and clubs got a combined figure of so many million. And I asked a question, I said, can you just tell me one ground? that's benefited from that or have you seen it because I know for a fact it was going into players budgets and that's the problem but if we can get the if we can you see if we can get the, the grounds and, and the, the arenas properly facilitated you will get people in and then you will not have to dip into the the, the, the refurbishment money because you'll have a culture of tour styles and then when people come in advertisement comes you get sponsorship because of the exposure. And, it, you know, we need to get the grounds right. I, 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 and I'll just finish up. I went to a game in the seventh tier of English football a month ago. Wimborne was the club. I had a meal before the game with about 200 people. I went out and sat in a real comfortable stand, not a big one, but nice and comfortable. Pictures like a beer table. Half time, I had coffee and a sandwich. And after the game, the away team had a full meal. You know, that was the seventh tier, lads. Now, on the pitch, wasn't great. But you will go away remembering all the other luxuries that you had and the enjoyment you had in the day. So that's what we need to do, lads. Yeah, no, that's all fair. Uh, are you writing a book, Roddy? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, lads. Uh, you know, this is unbelievable. I, I've been asked to do it a lot of times by a few people. But when Paul Howard came along, I couldn't refuse. But it's very intense. I didn't realise... How how hard it was to be honest with you. I was going to say there's a lot to, there's a lot to pick over. All the good stuff is great, but all the the stuff that you kind of that you know we're, we're Irish males. We, you nearly we, let that word out. The bad stuff. What bad stuff? <laughs> we, bad stuff. We all have bad I've stuff. Brilliant, I've actually had a brilliant life. It's been tough, honestly. When you read back in it and you think of all the years you've missed out of the dugout, you think Jesus. But then you think why. And like what I'm saying to you now, I've stood stood up for the cause, suffered for it, but I enjoyed the bits that, that were successful. But um, no, it just, look, it's down on paper now. I probably need to book a flight to Australia, get a team of solicitors to back me up to the hill. <laughs> and uh, there'll be a few people hiding under the bed, I think. <laughs> When's it out? It's what? When is the book out? It's out September 2022. We're just going through it now. I've finished chapter five reading it myself. The whole thing is done. I just have to go through the transcript and, you know, just verify and check dates and names and the whole lot. But uh, yeah, it's out then. So that's surreal, you know. But <clears throat> we'll see what we'll see what people think. At the end of the day, it's 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 my truth anyway. Yeah, well look, we're looking forward to it. Roddy, thanks a million for joining us this morning. Cheers. Nice stuff. Don't forget now, Elite Fives. Who's man enough to come up? Oh, by the way, I hope Newstalk are putting a team in. <laughs> team off the ball, man. There's no experts in there. Come on, lads. You, you can be in the dugout for us. Kenny Cunningham, centre-back. <laughs> yeah. So who'll never get a game if I'm in the dugout? Who? 
No, my lord. It's a seven or sorry to be the eighth man. <laughs> oh, there you go. Thanks All right, for, lads. Thanks a million, Roddy. Thanks. See you, lads. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Elite Five is launching today at lunchtime. Keep an eye out for it and get entering your team. 65 grand in prize money up for grabs over a weekend in June. 50 grand to the winners. That is a lot of pressure in the teams in that final. For amateur players who... Yeah, that's. Uh, Are we going to put wow. the worst team in? Are we definitely? Like it, it is pressure. Just uh, as as you're playing there, the the kids line up to watch the game, knowing that they they won't have new dugouts if uh, you end up losing that final. All <laughs> uh, right, late night live, late night LOI, late night LOI. What's it called, Nathan? <laughs> LOI after dark late night League of Ireland late night League of Ireland late night not half as seedy as you like to make it out to be Uh, but yes back Friday night 10 o'clock going to be a big one going to be the biggest one yet Rovers (laughs) Bulls Rovers have already lost twice you know if they lose again Jer Will we have some angry Rovers fans on? Well, I mean, it's it's uh, brilliant for the league. Cause that, the one thing about Rovers getting their house in order was that if they if we did have a Rosenberg situation where they won the league, then the rest of it would have been uh, less interesting. But it's great for the league that there is competition. Yeah, uh, I'd say one more defeat and Rovers will be past that. Jack Byrne said uh, and sort of acknowledged this. Yes, you know, we want a situation where there's big houses, full crowds uh, at the end of the season. But I think the novelty of that will wear off pretty quickly if they lose another couple of games. It's to make it interesting for everybody else. But listen, Roddy makes some great points. We're all wanting to be optimistic about the league and what the league can become. And there is an audit as part of the FAI strategy of all the various bits of infrastructure around the League of Ireland. But it is the number one thing that is holding it back, aside from Tala. Are any of these stadiums in Dublin better now than they were 20 years ago when Roddy was winning leagues with Bowles? No, they're worse. Really? All right, so Nathan, good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. Nathan Murphy with us this Wednesday morning. OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Still to come, football with Graham Hunter. We're hearing from a very special project in Palestine and much more. Fiona Hayes, though, is talking rugby next. OTB AM. 16 minutes past eight this morning. You're very welcome along to OTB AM. We'd love if you would subscribe to the OTB AM podcast feed. We put up uh, the show in segments. We put the whole show up as well. It's easy for you to get access to and you can get it on any podcast platform, although the OTB Sports app is the easiest and handiest one for you to do that. Now, I'm delighted to say Fiona Hayes is with us this morning to look forward to Ireland against England, which is on this weekend. Fiona, good morning to you. Good morning. Delighted to be here. Tell us, um, so the, the, what's your reaction to the news that we have made a, a big bet? It's not a, it's not a secret. We knew what was going to happen. We knew that Johnny Sexton was going to sign a new deal and would be staying through until the World Cup. He said that's the end for him. It does mean, though, that our eggs are very firmly in the Johnny Sexton basket. I think so, but I, I also think that with this, you know, we're, we're getting Joey a bit more game time. I think we, we know we know exactly what Johnny's like injury-wise. So it'll kind of depend on, I suppose, when we look at the summer tour, we'll get a chance, hopefully over in New Zealand, to get a few guys more game time. It's been kind of levelled out and hopefully in this England game at the weekend at Twickenham, we'll see both out halves make a, get on and get a shot at, at, at Ecloin that we know we know Sexton is the man at the minute and hopefully when it comes to World Cup, he will still be playing the way he is and he's been protected a lot by Leinster, as Eddie Jones pointed out um, in his press conference the other day. But but it's great for me. I think he's he's an outstanding player and he's still bringing it at this, at, at this age of 36 to the game. Like, uh, like, are we? We're not hostage to Sexton either, though. I mean, like, if he's not the starting ten 
for the World Cup on form, he won't be the starting 10. Like, I don't think yesterday's news changes the fact that the starting out half for Ireland the next year's World Cup is going to be based on merit. That's it. And we've seen those in, in selections this season, especially that, that it's, it's guys based on form that are getting picked. You know, if Johnny isn't playing well, if he isn't getting enough game time with Leinster, or if he's got a few niggly injuries, I think he won't be out there. We've seen the, the promise of tens coming through. You know, there's people crying out for Jack Carty, but we know exactly what Johnny Sexton can bring. And I think after this Six Nations, we'll see a, definitely a pecking order in those tens and everything will hopefully be based on form going forward from that uh, yeah, I mean the point that it all makes is really if somebody takes the jersey off them they will get the opportunity to take the jersey off them but there's so limited significant opportunities there's the summer tour that you talked about in the November window we'll have two difficult tests and then there's next year's Six Nations and that's it so the number of games in which you can take that jersey off them is very low and I, you know is there is there even an opportunity for any of the younger Munster at halves to get to get a window where they're going to get the big games in Europe now because we have to give those big games in Europe to Carberry if he is going to be given an opportunity to push Sexton and it feels like we've we've fixed in that this is the pecking order already and um it just it feels like we're kind of repeating some of the mistakes of of previous generations Hopefully not. Hopefully not. I think we've been crying out for a pecking order like the last uh, year or so. You know, we've had guys come in. We've had the burns in and out. So I, I think it's good. I think we're seeing um, a bit of structure. We know Andy Farrell has talked about form. So, yeah, the big games, maybe there isn't opportunities. But I think we have enough out-haves there at the minute. We're, we're kind of focusing on the likes of, of Carberry, who will have to go back in and, and, and start ahead of the likes of Ben Healy or, or Flannery. That's just the way it is for him to get the game time um, so there isn't massive opportunity with the games you know and obviously we don't have you know an Ireland A team we, we don't have those games so it's kind of I think it's good that this structure is in place I think we're at the right we're in the right time for it to, for it to happen for us to, to settle on maybe Joey being back up to Johnny and I suppose everyone is just praying that we can keep him fit and, and playing at the standard he's playing at the minute Yeah the trouble is that both of them are injury prone in, in different ways like Sexton will play, come back, puts his body on the line, suffers injuries as a result of that frequently and uh, misses games at this stage of his career as well. That can happen where a hamstring injury that, you know, in his 20s would have healed after two weeks, suddenly a four-weeker. So who's next after that? Because we haven't seen, uh, we haven't really seen a minute of Carty that wasn't like in chaos time at the end of the France game uh, under yeah. this regime. And after that, I don't know. Who is the fourth choice? Is it is it Healy? Is it... Uh, who is it? Is it Billy Burns? Is it Ross Byrne? I, I think I think in looking at what's been going on, I don't think Billy Burns... I think he's had his chance and, and he hasn't really uh, grabbed that jersey. So I, I think we've moved on from that. We saw Carity get up this time ahead of him. We haven't seen loads of Carty, but I think I think Farrell is looking at the provinces and that's where they'll get their chance. So so if either guys, if either the two guys, if both get injured, I think he has to go back and look to that drawing board and see who's the informed player. And you know, you, you will argue that Healy can play well at times, but but he's in and out of that monster team with Crowley at the minute because we see him in, in, in form. The Burns, I think uh, Ross got injured again the other day. So it is really hard and that's I suppose that's the joy 
always a rugby is that especially in that position at 10 you're going to have big massive lads running down your channel really all the time so so it's kind of trying to keep the guys flowing at province level and hopefully hoping they'll take that step up for me I think it's Carty is is the guy that's definitely there we haven't got enough because Carberry has to see him enough because Carberry's had to probably get that game time especially against Italy so so it's just that after that we'll see what's in Farrell's head hopefully we won't have to see that yeah I, it it's um you know it is a difficult situation for the, the coaching ticket because they do need to see Joey Carberry play every available minute to see if he's capable of playing at the level that we think he is because we just haven't seen it with injuries but um, it's not a ridiculous scenario where you would have both Sexton and Carberry potentially injured at the same time in a World Cup missing one game or maybe missing two games or maybe both gone for a period of time and after that it's like well here's somebody we looked at four years ago for the World Cup and um, hasn't really had much of an opportunity since and then there's a bunch of young players who we're not sure about yeah, yeah. When you say it like that, you, you know, you don't know what they're thinking. They might have thought. They might have said, "Look, we're going to New Zealand. We are going to divide out that game time." They, they obviously understand the injury profile of both players, and we haven't seen the likes of Carty. We haven't seen the likes of Healy or whoever else is behind in that order step up and play enough games. So, so I would be hopeful that maybe, although it's three New Zealand tests, that these guys would get to play at that level and they'd get the appetite for it. And then in November we could see if they've taken that step up or if they've been playing really well at the Europeans he might switch a few of these guys in looking at the World Cup ahead Yeah, okay. let's um, talk about what you expect to happen against England Uh, Eddie Jones is saying we're the most cohesive team in world rugby, he's love bombing us in the advance uh, of this one which is not really stereotypical Eddie Jones but certainly trying to ratchet up the pressure on us and, and take the pressure off his team which is under a lot of pressure at the moment so uh, we should ignore that, really, shouldn't we? And just look at the respective strengths of the two teams and go, Ireland are a much stronger team at the moment and we should be able, when we are the stronger team, to go and inflict our game plan on the opposition and win these games. Yeah, we, we know what Eddie's about. He's obviously taking the pressure off his own lads. And I think for, for an English uh, coach to say any team uh, going over to Twickenham and and being, you know, firm favourites and, and talking us, about us like that, we know that he's probably talking a little bit of crap saying that because it's a very hard place to go to. It's a very hard place for any team. We saw that, you know, we've seen England in the last two games. They're, they're not great. The 23-19 win over Wales was good. They're building a little bit. They're, they're swaying from their game plan maybe in the past of 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 big ball carriers we're, we're not seeing that as much you know there's not as much bulk I don't think in the teams he's he's switched Harry Randall in so we're seeing less of a kicking game from the nine so so I think Ireland just need to focus on themselves and and that's what they'll do they they know they're building as well Italy we can't take much from that game but I think in the second half of France we came out and, and we gave it a blast you know Italy as I said we saw players put their hand up and say look if if I want to get in this starting team as well so there, there's good competition we know up at camp so I think Ireland will just be focusing on their own game plan we'll be going out and playing the exact same style of rugby we've been seeing from those first few tests against France and like that, oh, sorry, if you want to, like sorry, that, that, that point has been like brought up a bit. This idea, and I guess Eddie Jones is the one putting it forward that that Ireland maybe are in a better place than England. Like, are Ireland on paper a better team than England? Because I mean, it does seem that England are still kind of working out what sort of team they want to be, and on paper they still have plenty of quality and have traditionally had way more quality than Ireland. 
I think Ireland are far more cohesive in what I'm, wa- in what I'm watching with England. I, I think he's throwing a few guys in. We've seen, you know, the likes of Freddie Stewart's gone into fullback. We see we see Daly and Slade in the centre partnership. It just doesn't look like it's gelling. Obviously, he'd love to have Tuilagi in there. Um, so I think he's building. Our, this Ireland team, I think Andy Farrell has got them settled. I, I think we, we saw, especially when Johnny's on there, he's pulling those strings. We have guys stepping up as first receiver that we we probably wouldn't have had him maybe three, four years ago. We've props in there every position. Everyone's ball skills is, is at a high, high level, you know, and, and we're seeing that. We're seeing Ireland play a lot of the ball, but there's also an understanding between players and they have a really, really good understanding of the game plan as well that he's trying to give. So that's great. Uh, how do we get better over the next 12, 14, 16 months? <laughs> yeah, that's it. We don't want to peak too soon anyway. We, we've seen that in the past. We don't want to be open ourselves too soon. I think we know it's just need to keep building. And I suppose the biggest thing is is what you talked about, lads, earlier, is that depth. So we've got to get more guys into that position. We've got to get the likes of Lowry in full back for some games. We've got to get a couple of those back rows in there. We've got to get Coombs in there. As you spoke, we've got to start switching up the tens. We obviously want to win games. Ireland have the potential to win a lot of games but if it's we've got to win them by making a few changes so when we know when we get to that World Cup that everyone's on the same level they're all playing that high intense rugby but they're all comfortable and that cohesion hasn't gone because maybe two players have gotten injured So do you make changes for this week on the basis that the players are supposed to be interchangeable they're supposed to be capable of stepping in and this is the opportunity to, to do that or do you go back to the team that really beat Wales in that first game and go that's our team I think that Porter obviously yeah obviously Porter I think he's going to go back to that team I think he's looked at this Six Nations obviously you know France we've talked about how good they are Um, we're hoping that maybe they can split they can slip up and we're next in line so the Six Nations is still there to be to be to be taken so I think he will go back to that to that first squad that we've seen Bar Porter we might see Healy coming in with um, Kilcoyne on the bench Um, I think there's still a little bit more in that team and I and I I think he wants to see more out of those guys so although yeah we should be interchanging some players I I, I think we he did that against Israel so I think he will go back for this big Twickenham test and I think he will go with the, the original team that we started in that very first game at the Six Nations and one last question then Henshaw in instead of Aki or Aki in and Henshaw on the bench I think he's going to go with Aki I think especially against that England midfield we need Aki we need that power game and we, we know what he can bring I think Henshaw could come on off the bench that would be my take on it uh, um, he's suited to England I think Aki I think he he loves you know he loves that attacking he loves getting over that gain line and getting those offloads away obviously Henshaw can offer you a lot more as well but with this with this game it's going to be a kick in a kick in game from England maybe if they if they if they start Ben um, Ben young so I would think that we would try to attack and maybe Aki's the best man to to, to be carrying us over that game line Alright give us your prediction um, I think it's going to be closer than a lot of people think but I think Ireland by plus four Alright good stuff Fiona enjoy the game thanks a million for joining us cheers Thanks guys bye bye Fiona Hayes giving us her thoughts there if you want to get in touch 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number or you can leave a comment in the YouTube stream and a reminder OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day it's bang on half past eight this morning uh, let's bring you some Brian O'Driscoll goodness and then we're going to get into Razzy Rasmus and uh, just exactly why he is a cult hero in South Africa so Brian O'Driscoll was with Joe in studio last night to look ahead to the game here he is talking about the difference between Johnny Sexton and Marcus Smith 
You know what as well, it's worth just stating, not to labour the point, but in spite of the general improvement in Ireland that we have seen, this Six Nations has once again underlined Sexton's importance, even against Italy. The difference when he came on versus the previous 60. Everything just looked better, smoother, more fluid. Should Joey had just softened them up in the first 60, 55, <laughs> 60 minutes? For, for, you know, people say they were Joey detractors in some shape or form. It, it's clear as day, you know, what he does add. And it's funny, I've watched a lot of footage this week because we're doing a piece at the weekend with ITV on... Marcus Smith versus Johnny Sexton and both of them understand space they really do but Johnny's understanding is just is pure experience whereas Marcus gets it but he's got this incredible athletic prowess that gets him out of trouble that wouldn't allow other players to be able to survive mm. and he, and also he backs himself so much he's if in doubt he'll back his himself whereas Johnny's now re, really using his intellect he's an inferior athlete to Marcus Smith and inferior to many other tens but still very capable if you offer him a gap he'll still go through it so it's his passing game and his vision and his ability to attract defenders and then pick the right option is the real differentiator between you know, another player of 37 or 38 and him and that's why he's still our number one. Yeah, for sure and he's going to start the game this weekend. I think everybody accepts that that is definitely going to be the case. We'll come back to that. That team will be named uh, later in the week and we'll have rugby every day to the Southern Hemisphere now. Um, so Razzy Rasmus has done a couple of interviews with the Mail. Really interesting stuff where he's talked about the video that was leaked Um in the aftermath of the first test that was massively critical of the referee ahead of the second test and that clearly had an impact. Uh, but he's also talked about the Six Nations and whether or not South Africa should be as part of it. So uh, Stephen Kisby-Green, our resident South African, is with us. Stephen, good morning to you. Morning, morning, lads. How's it going? So uh, last time we had you on the show, I think you were actually in South Africa with, um, what was the name of the bird? The Drakensberg. What you me for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, in the background, um, so you've you've come back, yes, yeah. and uh, Razzie's gone public, delighted with life, like absolutely delighted. I've never seen a man suspended from anything ever in his life who has enjoyed his suspension as much as Razzie is. That's proper South African kiss. What, what can we say? It's, uh, it's you get suspended, you get a, you're still getting paid, so he goes on a holiday. Why not? It's a very long holiday where he invites a journalist from the Daily Mail down to spend, you know, a, a good bit of quality time and. And, um, and get his side of the story across, I think, is, is what's happened over the last few days. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I was just looking at Razzie's uh, Twitter account. You've seen, seen that, right? Yeah. This morning. No. Oh, no. Uh, what, what uh, you quote, quote tweeted uh, an organization called that Off the Ball. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So um, we'll come back to that in a while. If you want to do the context first. And uh, yeah, Matt Williams was obviously talking about him earlier in the week. So we'll come back to that. I mean, he's basically, he's put together a really nice application for the England job if you ask me because he's taking this this, this daily the daily mail um, interview as opposed to a South African organization he's kind of testing the waters a little bit as to how the English are going to receive him how the how we're going to receive him over here it's it's a, a very well calculated move on his, on his part I think wow I love my conspiracy theories on this show I hadn't I, that never once crossed my mind I just thought that he's in a job for life here it's the job of his dreams. You know, he this is exactly what he wanted. He's got everybody where he wants them. He's got the South African rugby public eating out of his hands. He's got the rest of the world. Everybody hates us. We don't care. Proper. And it, it worked. Everything he's done ever has worked. 
Well, exactly. But um, in the second part of the interview, he actually goes on to say that he's, he's only in the director of rugby role until after the World Cup. Nice. And he, 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 he said that he'll be more than happy to take on England if England offer it to them and if the, Irish, uh, and if the English fans don't hate him. But at the moment, he, still, he does feel like the English fans hate him. Irish, uh, South African fans love him. Irish fans don't really like him too much, except for maybe the Munster fans. Irish fans love then. him, presumably. Although they do feel a little bit like he walked out on them. Yeah, yeah. But no, I think I think it's still very much love for for Rassi, to be honest. In, in I forgot you were a Munster fan there. Sorry. Well, uh, yeah. Is, uh, do you really do you really think that? I th- I absolutely think in the Munster hardcore, the uh, feeling towards Rassi is is love, and that uh, it would take it would have taken far more of a betrayal than for a man to go back. Uh, to his, his home country yeah, exactly. to, to go I, I think that's the only one they could have forgiven him for if he'd gone to England it would have been like now yeah, screw you exactly. but the fact that he went home and won the World Cup there is undying loyalty towards Razzie from the Munster Hardcore I think so it's, uh, and you can understand why the South Africans seem to, seem to have that similar sort of loyalty with him after, after winning the World Cup um, sorry, Irish fans might know what that feels like eventually. Um, <laughs> but it's, he, 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 he doesn't want to portray the South African fans by going over to England if they do realize, think that it will be an, uh, an issue. But at the same time, this is the, the fact that he didn't go to like SA Rugby Magazine, for example, which is one of the biggest rugby magazines in South Africa, um, it, to do this sort of deep dive interview, he went to the, to the Daily Mail. It, it's... It shows that he's very intelligently placing where he wants to where he, where he wants to put the, these sorts of ideas. Again, there's also the idea of the Six Nations. He wants to try and win the the, the, the support for South Africa joining the Six Nations if if they do. He thinks it's going to happen. Judging from this, he thinks it'll. His exact words were were he thinks it would be awesome, and it does make sense from his. So to a certain point of view, to a certain exp- uh, point of view, if you think um, same sort of time zone, the the the, diff- the flight times are not too mu- too dissimilar to flying over to New Zealand or Australia. In fact, it actually takes you longer to fly from South Africa to Australia or New Zealand uh, by about three or four hours. And then, obviously, when you get the, when you get to New Zealand and Australia, you've got to uh, sit around for like six or seven hours to get actually used to the the, the time zones. Whereas in I mean, I've done the trip recently coming back from South Africa. It's really, I was in work the next day and it was no, no, no problem at all. So um, th- that does make sense. But I don't think it's going to happen personally. I also don't think it's a good idea personally, even though I really want to see the Springboks come and play in the Viva so I can actually watch some good rugby <laughs> in the Viva. Um, but no, it'll, it's, I, I don't think Rossi's gunning for it to happen, but he does... He does think the door is open. Like, you guys really do owe us. We, we spanked you so bad, you got rid of your head coach and put Razzie in. It yeah. was, that's the sliding doors moment in South African rugby. Whereas if yeah. we just beaten you by three points or let you, let you have a crappy win, then you still would have had the crap coach. Razzie would have won a heightened cup with Munster and life would have been totally different. So it's, it's on us. Stephen, we, we will take your gratitude. No, no. Well, I mean, Eddie Jones in Japan as well. It's almost like Brent Pope. Brent Pope's halftime spiel <laughs> at that time, which obviously Rassi yeah, quote, also quote tweeted. Also quote Often quote tweeted, yeah. Um, that, that was the night. The night Rassi uh, says he didn't uh, make his mind up to take the South Africa job, but really it was the night I'd say that he, yeah. he wanted it. Uh, so let's talk about the interview as well. What, what's the fallout been in, in South Africa? You, you were obviously coming up with that. I presume that is now people are like, oh, oh, Rassi isn't just ours for life. Yeah, it's kind of like a lot of South African fans at the moment, they will, they will sort of be a little bit un- 
by something they'll be annoyed if he does leave. Like, Rossi used the word hate a lot in, in the interview. I think that was also a calculated move because he, he wants to try and test the waters to see how much the betrayal might hurt South Africans. But I don't think too many South Africans will, will hate him for, for leaving if he does go over to England, for example. Because um, also, you can't, like, he's not in a head coach role at the moment. He's director of rugby. And you, he's such a good, a, a brilliant rugby brain that you can't keep him away from. Um, head coaching for, for for too long, I don't think. He's he's young. He's got the um, well, he's relatively young for a head coach. He's got plenty of time to uh, win World Cups with different teams. So I don't see too many South Africans hating him for um, leaving. It's it'll be interesting though if he leaves to England because the only team that South Africans don't really like more than the Australians is probably the English. That's fair enough. I think um, you know everybody feels the same. Uh, so. Other issues that he raised, uh, he talked about making Sia Khaleesi captain. Yeah. That was a... He mentioned he lost a couple of friends in doing so, and um, he also quotes um, some of his daughter's parents telling telling them to tell him that um, he must stop uh, trying to please um, his bosses or whatever. And it does kind of like there is that that, that, that undertone. Uh, there was that undertone at the time that it was a quota signing or a quota appointment, uh, which obviously it wasn't. And Rassi said to that point blank. Sia said to that point blank. But there was that undertone from a lot of different pockets of South African society where some people were saying, "Oh no, he's doing this just to make himself make his job in, in, in South Africa more secure." Others were saying that it was purely based on the on the color of Sia's skin. And it's so there was a, a visceral racist reaction to it. I wouldn't say it was visceral, but there was it was an undertone of, of, of a racist reaction to it. Yes, and it, 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 it was the loud minority as opposed to the overarching majority. And and for a lot of people, it was um, like nobody noticed that it was Sia. I mean, okay, no, every, every, everyone noticed because it was obviously the first time it was a black South African captaining the Springboks, but. Um, for a lot of people, it was done on form, and um, you could see the act- the leadership that he has in, in the group, not only with the Stormers, but also with the Springboks themselves. But at the same time, they also had the issue with Warren Whiteley. There was a lot of people saying that Warren Whiteley wasn't, uh, wasn't the right captain for the job um, because he wasn't the best player in his position. I mean, he was up against Dwayne Vermeulen at the time, and Warren Whiteley is... Uh, is a very atypical South African eighth man. He's more of a uh, of a number six or a seven than he is an eighth man. But he was playing eight and he was captain, and there was a lot of hatred there. But that was on a different level. So South Africans are never really happy all the time with because they, they always think, oh no, my my team's captain is better than your team's captain, so he should be captain of the Springboks sort of thing. Okay. Uh, breaking Razi news. What's he tweeting? Uh, so there was a Monday Night Rugby clip which uh, involved Matt Williams and Jerry Thornley. And uh, Matt Williams was talking about Rassi's interview and said, I didn't see any value in him leaking the video. The content of that video is not bad. And uh, Rassi Rasmus quote tweeted that clip saying, I love you, Matt Williams! Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. What time in the morning is it? What, what was this? It's uh, 11.45pm Irish time last night. Uh, so that would have been it's about 12 one. No, no, it's... Uh, uh, yeah, 12 one, yeah. So, um... I don't know what that means. So that I like I mean I, I never know what what tone to take from Rasi Rasmus. He is nice he's, holiday tweeting. He was truly he, living rent free in all of our heads. He, he was probably having a bit of a Bronavein and Coke. Oh yeah, <laughs> sorry, that's brandy for you. Okay, <laughs> uh, right. So 
he can literally do what he wants at the moment in South Africa. He won Alliance series pretty straightforward in the end, but like using every tactic in the book, won a World Cup. Uh, they're the best team in the world. He is beloved. He can walk on water. Pretty much, yeah. All right. SKG, thanks very much for that. It is 8.42 this morning here on OTBAM. Brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Episode 7 of the Football Pod with Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue is available right now on podcasts in the Football Pod feed or in OTBGA. Here is James O'Donoghue talking about the main difference that we're already seeing between Peter Keane's carry and what Jack O'Connor is doing. Kicking the ball. It's very political here now, Jamesy. Watch your step here. No, no, he's answering oh, there. Hold it, on. Go it's on. kicking the ball. Okay. Peter had, Peter had it down, but there was times where we didn't move the ball fast enough, whereas I can imagine Jack inside is just saying, move it, move it, move it. And I could actually see it against Dublin. There was one stage where we were coming out the right half-back position. And usually we'd have nearly turned back and hit a bit of traffic and maybe gone a hand pass backwards. But I could just tell that Jack did not want that. And the number 12, the half forward on the other side, had to make a diagonal run to receive a kick pass, kind of diagonal kick pass slash down the line. And it was just that that unbelievable hard run from the wing forward over to the other side starts an attack and gets you out. And Mm. I don't think that the Kerry were doing that over the last... um, year or two but I think that there's going to be such an emphasis on it now it's it's going to improve them and in terms of getting a message across to a squad that can't just be a throwaway comment that we're going to kick it more lads clearly that has to be drilled into them uh, every possible chance he gets he's going to say kick it and if it doesn't happen in training he's going to stop training up he's going to say lads that has to be kicked and he's going to say it in a nice calm way but then you'll know that look if you kick it and you lose it this is the way we're going with it. Yeah. But the benefits of it for Kerry, if you're kicking the ball to the two Cliffords, to Shawnee Shea, to Paul Ganey, why would you not do that? Why would you be hand-passing the ball around midfield or the half-back line? Oh, there's a green and gold storm rising. You must be, I'm going to keep saying it, you must be excited. Oh yeah, absolutely. I also think that what plays into his point there is that they've got loads of players so that they can afford to you know, go all out and go for the throat early in games and tire themselves out if they want to because they'll have somebody outside of uh, whatever their the subs are just big, players, their, their, their subs are just so good at this point. Um, that's the, the only part about that is who are the hard-running half-forwards who have to sacrifice everything for the team? Uh, well, Adrian's, for those. Yeah, like Adrian's plan has made a real step up this year. He's been arguably one of Kerry's best players so far this year and um, can obviously slip into midfield as well. And they do have a lot of smaller versions of him too. All right, John Duggan is with us at 8.45 this morning. John, good morning to you. Jaron Owen, how are you doing? We've got uh, time for a, a minute sports bulletin, but then we're going to get to the, the main meat and drink of the day. But what's going on? Well, Liverpool, as we know, into the Champions League quarterfinals with that 1-0 defeat uh, to Inter Milan last night at Anfield. Uh, Lautaro Martinez scoring a great goal, but then Alexis Sanchez was, says, was sent off, which really put pay to Inter's chances. So Liverpool go to, through 2-1 on aggregate. Bayern Munich also into the last eight, a thumping of Salzburg, 7-1 uh, on the night. And 8-2 on aggregate, Lewandowski with a hat-trick. All the... Um, Money is going to be on show at uh, the Bernabeu tonight with uh, Real Madrid hosting PSG with a 1-0 lead for PSG from the first leg of their last 16 tie. So Messi et al. going back to the Bernabeu uh, with uh, Tony Kroos injured, Casemiro suspended. Ramos is not going to be playing as well. So fascinating match that. We know Man City are through 5-0. They lead Sporting going into that game. Johnny Sexton, new deal until the end of the World Cup to 2023. 
and that's pretty much it lads David says good to see Troy Parrott score two last night he's been yeah. playing but not scoring with an injury in between hopefully goes on a run MK Dons 3 Chatham Town 1 we also had Ryan Manning sent off for Swansea in their 5-1 defeat to Fulham and Fulham have got a 14 point lead now lads at the top of the championship so we'll be all going to Craven Cottage next season oh, Yeah, it's nice. a nice atmospheric venue um, even nicer than Pride Park right we start this week's virtual insanity with a special tribute to the man of the moment Puerto Rican Open champion Ryan Brain Brem yeah Brem To be honest with you, I, I don't even I don't care one bit about Roy Mackler. I don't care one bit about that particular tournament. The the Puerto Rico Open is where things were at at the weekend. We had a 35 year old Michigan player called Ryan Brem uh, shoot the lights out. I would die for Ryan Brem. I would also die for John Duggan. To be honest with you, and, and virtual insanity. I would die for Ryan Brem. Uh, what an absolutely phenomenal uh, moment this was to be uh, a 50 to one shot. Or I think actually 66 to one is what John got him at, and uh, and watch him coast home at the end. An alternate reality where we're having a great time right now. Does virtual insanity just cover over for a dreadful life? In order for the vessel to travel through time, it's got to find a porthole, or in this case, a wormhole. A wormhole. <laughs> I love it a good time. There's definitely. Well, an, sorry, yeah, of course. How could you not be? There's definitely an alternate reality. A wormhole. Uh, where maybe the world is not going to hell. All right. <laughs> Am I <on> mushrooms, lads? <laughs> <laughs> a little microdose of psychosilbin in your uh, in your earbuds. That, that was amazing. I love the production team. They come up with these amazing tunes and music that's always so apt for the occasion. Um, Ryan Brem needed to win or be second last week to uh, save his, his his bacon on the PGA Tour. It was his first start of the season, and he had his wife on the bag carrying his clubs for the four days and obviously it worked and he won by six shots and it was look I had six players in that tournament it was one of the players I picked so we're not going to be jumping handstands but it's ah. a winner you know ah, I think uh, we should celebrate the work of Joseph Conroy who, who created yeah. the, yeah. the uh, video and audio thing that you've just heard and uh, we should celebrate the work of John Duggan the, 100% I didn't know how to pronounce Ryan Bram even after a week of listening to you talk about him <laughs> yeah that's pretty bad on, on your behalf sure. he is hey what's the, the name of the South African bird he is the I have no idea we just heard it again. how many South African birds have won me 50 quid John uh, fix this <laughs> so lads uh, yeah so we've had a, we've had a good year folks uh, 66 to 1 80 to 1 and 25 to 1 winners uh, never gamble more than you can afford um, but uh, uh, yeah, this is virtual insanity the the, the, the whole kind of fun of this is try to challenge yourself can you maybe pick a winner it's not really about gambling necessarily Um the Players' Championship starts tomorrow, guys. This is a really big tournament. This is what they call the fifth major. The field is extremely deep. It's all the best players in the world, apart from Tiger, who's going to be inducted into the World Tough Golf Hall of Fame this evening by his daughter, Sam, which is a nice touch. Uh, Phil Mickelson, as we know, is absent at the moment, and Bryson DeChambeau is injured. Everybody else is there, though. So Rory, we know, with the 2019 champion, um, could bounce back. It's going to be a soft course this week. It's going to rain. Um, it, it might suit his game a bit more than last week Shane Lowry had a top 10 in this last year was second in the Honda Classic definitely he's got a big chance Seamus Power is 50th in the world he needs to stay there by the end of March to get into the Masters so they're the three Irish lads normally you'd have about 20 quid virtually on these tournaments I've got two pillars this week so there's a Patrick Cantlay pillar and then there's everybody else so the Patrick Cantlay pillar is 20 euros so Patrick Cantlay is the headline tip 10 each way 20 to 1 a lot of bookmakers are going to 9, 10, 11 places this is 9 places with William Hill um, Patrick Cantlay is, I'd say, the Rodney Dangerfield of golf. You don't get no respect. He is, to me, the guy who's going to be winning a major championship soon. 
uh, born on St. Patrick's Day. That's probably the, the, the extent of the Irish links. But like, if you look at his game, he's got no weaknesses. Uh, he was the PGA Tour Player of the Year last season. He won the Tour Championship. He won four times last season. He's a very unassuming, un, uh, kind of quiet guy. Just goes about his business. Um, has had, what, three top fives already this season. Is really good on the stats. Uh, at Sawgrass, people will go, well, he doesn't have form there or whatever. He was tied seventh going into the final round in 2017, tied eighth going into the final round in 2018, um, have played there as a junior, says he loves the course, likes the Pete Dye design. I think Patrick Cantlay is overpriced at 20 to 1. He's a headline, a clear headline selection for me, lads. Patrick Cantlay, 10 each way, 20 to 1. Uh, so the, the other pillar then is the others. Uh, I actually asked people on Twitter, should we tip a few each ways? And they said, yeah, you should. So the others, Brooks Kepka, right? I think Brooks um, is coming back into form for each way at ter- 35 to 1. He uh, shot a 63 here before, back in 2018. If it's the weather's going to be bad, he's a good, bad weather player. One of the windy Shinnecock Hills won the US Open there a few years ago. Driving the ball well again, he's a killer. Brooks Kepka will just kill you in, in the heat of a, a tournament. He's won four major championships. Um, I think he'll like to win this tournament. And I think if you can put well this weekend at Sawgrass, he's definitely a big contender. Brooks. Matt Fitzpatrick, who he headlined last week, was tied for ninth at the Arnold Palmer Invitational. He was also tied for ninth in this last year at Sawgrass. Uh, 35 to 1 for four each way. He's a grinder. You might need to grind with thunderstorms, with wind, with all this kind of stuff they're going to face this weekend. And he's won the DP World Tour Championship twice, so he's not afraid to win a big tournament. Never won on US soil. I think Matt Fitzpatrick might have a chance this week. Then the three rank outsiders for a Euro each way, the three of them. Emiliano Grillo of Argentina is 200 to 1. Um, Contended in this in 2017, played well in his last tournament, the Genesis Invitational, was hanging around the leaderboard in the final round, is a brilliant ball striker but a shaky putter. But I think that if he can make a few putts drop, Emiliano Grillo at 200 to 1 could get 40 to 1 a place. Dylan Fratelli, 250 to 1 for a euro each way, was tied fifth of the Masters on his rookie appearance in 2020, was fifth of the Open last year. There's no rhyme or reason whatsoever to this guy's form. Um, but he can come out of nowhere and do something. He was 22nd in the players on his only start last year in it, and he's been playing with little glimpses of form from Dylan Fratelli. I've noticed the South African uh, was a good college player. And finally, Taylor Pendrith is 250 to 1 for a euro each way. Ninth in driving distance, four power fives here. Um, if I once again have noticed him as a rookie this year doing a few things, should have won in Bermuda in difficult conditions, was four times uh, second in the Corn Ferry Tour last year. And I think he could surprise a few people in the next few tournaments. So Taylor Pendrith, Emiliano Grillo, and uh, Dylan Fratelli are the outsiders at massive prices, maybe to get into the top 10. But Brooks Koepka, uh, Matt Fitzpatrick in the middle rank, and then the headline lads this week, Patrick Cantlay. And even if he doesn't win this week, I think his price will go out for the majors, and I think he will be a major champion this year. All right, good stuff. That is this week's Virtual Insanity. You have entered Power Drive. All right, uh, we'll run through the papers for you. We might start on otbsports.com. Doherty shines as Coleman's rut continues. That's the discussion last night on the football show. Uh, we've got virtual insanity up there already. Jonathan Sexton versus Marcus Smith head to head. That's uh, Brian O'Driscoll talking about that. And Rio Ferdinand saying it's not about the manager, it's about the players at Manchester United. Is he? Is he, he might be. I'm not sure. The, I mean, the manager hasn't worked out either, has it? It's too early to say, uh, but uh, it's not too early to say that it hasn't. No. Uh, it's <laughs> too early to say whether or not he's going to be uh, a success at the club, which is the weird sort might of not be involved the club. that we're in. But like, 
So has, has, there is a contract that exists where Ranić is there as advisor. Is there like is it guaranteed or is it like if this goes okay we will? Because uh, somebody texted us yesterday or tweeted us yesterday um, to say you missed the quarter of the weekend where Ralph Ranić said he has not yet been consulted or spoken to about the next manager. It's like mm, okay. probably get on that now. To be honest, I think mention, I think mention it to him. I think maybe he was appointed in the hope that he would be the guy. Have have some. Um, have some chips and sit down, break some bread. Yeah. Have a drink. Have a prawn sandwich with the rest of the board and come to the conclusion that you are not going to be the man in charge of the club next year and start working on that. Uh, Vladimir Klitschko has done an interview with Mike Walters and it's run uh, across the mirror and uh, it's run across a couple of the papers today actually. Um, and they, the, the Klitschko's are, are launching a campaign to exclude Russia from all international sporting associations, ban Russian athletes from participating in any international competition, stop the sale of broadcast rights of international sports competitions, prohibit Russian companies from being sponsors of international competitions and clubs, support Ukraine by informing the world. That's the... Um, so it's, the slogan is, no more Russia in international sports. Klitschko's are involved, Zinchenko is involved, and they've got the uh, Yuri... Sviridov, marketing director of Shakhtar Donetsk, um, is actually the campaign manager for the whole thing. So uh, they're making the point that, very simply, uh, Putin used sport for propaganda when Russia hosted the 2018 World Cup and the Winter Olympics in Sochi, and so therefore it's fair game to use sport back to punish Russia. It's like um, a fairly simple equation when it comes to that, uh, which is, it's, you know, I mean... It's definitely uh, an interesting way. I There's two minds about stopping the Premier League games because the Premier League games have been the sites of uh, anti-Russian protests. And actually, maybe if those matches are broadcast, there is more of an opportunity for the players to get messages back to the Russian people, which, let's face it, they're not going to get through any other media forms. No. There, are, there obviously is some... Uh, leaking through of information and I mean we, we live in such a modern world that it's it's going to penetrate eventually you'd like to think and uh, I, w- I would say that a good degree of the reason why there's been maybe um, there has been protests obviously but there hasn't been a, it hasn't been on an even bigger level is because of just pure fear as opposed to lack of access to information but you're right there is absolutely a huge amount of censorship going on and, and one of those ways might be true sport and trying to get those messages through Um so yeah, it'll be like it's the, the, the Klitschko stories. It's it's going to be absolutely. It is fascinating. It's it, it's it's incredible what they're doing, and and all the sports people who have who've returned to their country. Every minute counts. We can't wait for conventions at the end of the month. There's no place in international sport for a nation whose leaders have chosen the path of war and threatened the world with nuclear weapons. Um, so that's uh, Vladimir Klitschko giving interviews. Um, it's an exclusive. It's in the mirror. I think. It's also one of the other papers this morning. You can read it if you get your hands on it. The rest of it is really, you know, the mundane rest of the world is going on about our business. Um, winning at Twickenham is never easy. Even if Ireland are excellent, it would still be close. That's Gordon Darcy. Section signs New Deal and confirms he will retire after the World Cup. So he said he's already planning for life after rugby. His, um, his brother is working with the Ireland under-20s. So I don't know if there's a life after rugby, which is somehow involved with coaching. He said no to that in the past, but he also had said in the past that he would be interested in it so I'm not sure what that is um, Inter the last eight uh, Liverpool nil Inter Milan won last night uh, we're just Vlad we're not alone Iron Kiev is um, the two Klitschko's standing in front of uh, graffiti 
Um, that is the back of the star this morning. We've already talked about the um, Chelsea takeover is one of the main stories in the front of the Telegraph. Uh, out on a high, Sexton signs up for shot at World Cup redemption. Pow's warning, we don't want to sit back, Sweden will push us back. That is Vera Pau talking about the Republic of Ireland versus Sweden. And also, Phil Mickelson must explain his comments. That's the head of this. The Jay Monaghan State of the Nation is out. And Dublin need a reset to improve, says um, John O'Leary. Relegation from Division 1 may be the reset the current team need before launching a bid for All-Ireland glory. I don't think relegation is going to be too big a deal if they get relegated. It doesn't matter. You, th- you think? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Um, like I, I think that they'll probably go, go down and just kind of rebound in a way that, that Mayo did last season obviously Mayo with a lot of new players and that young group of players probably benefited quite a bit from finding their feet in competitive senior football last year in Division 2 so is there going to be a similar tranche of new Dublin players who benefit from it? Possibly there's also this situation where we don't know what version of Dublin we're going to see this this um, this summer as well and, and and maybe the five or six more players will come back and 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 prove to us that we've read too much into this thing in the first place and that truly would render this relegation story completely meaningless. Okay, let's move to a, a totally different story. We're going to a gym on the West Bank in uh, Palestine and I'm delighted to say Anne O'Carolon is with us this morning. Anne, good morning to you. Lads, how are you? It's good to, good to join us again. Yeah, um, last time we were talking to you, you were getting equipment into Palestine. As far as I know now, the equipment is in, the classes are up and running, and the gym is fully functional. Last time we were talking, nearly exactly two years ago, actually, and we had just opened the gym the last time. I think we were chatting just before we left the last time, which was right before the whole kind of pandemic uh, kind of reached this in, in all its seriousness. So that's been a pretty hectic two years. Like there's been a lot of changes, obviously all over the world, but specifically been a lot of changes in Palestine. We've progressed a lot with the, the whole gym project and there's been a lot of changes here in the, the Laji Centre where I'm sitting now, which is the community centre in the Ida refugee camp in uh, Bethlehem where the gym is located. What, what kind of changes? Well, first and foremost, um, like the, the, my friend who, I, who kind of like came up with the idea about the gym in the first place with Salah Jarma, just sitting, right, pictured right behind me there, passed away very suddenly last April. So there's been loads of changes from that perspective and from an organisation point of view. And like Salah was a real leader and and a revolutionary, like in terms of how he he was perceived in the community and the work that he did over the years. So the the crew here at the Ladi Centre really have had to kind of, um, you know, it's tough going when you lose a leader like that and they kind of regroup and, and decide that right if we're going to make this a success I wonder if we're going to um, honour Salah's legacy then we're going to have to get the shoulder to the wheel and really like um, kind of up the ante with all the projects and as soon as we came over here this time you could feel that energy straight away people like they're obviously still still missing very much and think about them all the time and they're they're kind of channeling in many ways that energy into the various projects that they have here at the Lodge Centre like the gym is just one of the projects the centre here has been on the go for something like 20 years and they've got an environmental unit that tests the water quality and it grows uh, vegetables on the garden they've got a women's unit a community health workers unit uh, they just opened a kindergarten during like they opened a kindergarten during the during the pandemic which was only just an old disused storeroom the last time we were here, the same kind of room that we had uh, to build the gym in. So it's just absolutely amazing, all of the, all the work that people have done over here. And we're very glad to be a part of it. Um, like, so that's one, one kind of aspect of the change. But like since we've been here, it's been a really hectic couple of weeks. There's been regular clashes with the Israeli army who's 
surround the whole camp here. Like the camp has got a, uh, something like five and a half thousand people living in it in a three quarter of a square kilometer area. It's surrounded by the apartheid wall and army watchtowers and also access points for the army to come in. Uh, like we were on the roof only here a couple of days when tear gas started landing on, on the roof. There's been young fellas shot with these rubber coated metal bullets um, for being on the street. A young fella got lifted from his bed at three o'clock in the morning the other night by like 30 or 40 soldiers came into the camp fully armed with a jeep in the middle of the night, went to this young fella's home, got him out of bed, put a blindfold on him and frog marched him out of the camp. Just uh, uh, two days ago, there was a 12-year-old on the street and the soldiers laid a trap for him, hid behind a wall, put they drove into the camp, let off a smoke bomb. The soldiers were in the jeep, jumped out of the camp and they hid behind the wall until they seen the kids kid was just unfortunate enough just to not know that the soldiers were hiding behind the wall and they grabbed him, took him away. That's the way the life is over here. Like, it's just such a contrast. Like, the thing I suppose that I'm keen to, to kind of talk about when people ask me about the gym project and the Lazy Centre and the different work here is that every project that, including the gym, that uh, is the Lazy Centre have here, it's, it's a form of resistance in the way that, like, the other day, the, the army were in here. Uh, with their weapons loaded, firing countless numbers of tear gas canisters in, the, in, in around the camp and in around the centre here. And it was uh, four or five of the young uh, young girls, young women in having uh, a music lesson with one of our crew, Shiva, who was over. And that's the kind of contrast that, that is just a kind of a constant kind of uh, a constant presence in life over here when you've got these attacks by the, by the army and you've got uh, the things that have gone on in the Lazy Centre here as well as, as various kind of forms of of kind of resistance. I think that's a really important point maybe to get across. So trying to go about music, trying to go about physical activity in the gym, um, it, it, it's very difficult to, to do that and to continue um, without what's going on in the background having a massive impact. But for you guys, it's... It, or for whoever is actually taking those classes, there is some kind of minor release, um, a momentary sense of normality or escapism. It's it's not just escapism, it's active resistance. Like it's, they're actively, this is what people are doing over here to try and kind of stand up to the, um, to the soldiers and to the level of oppression that goes on here. You see, just as an example, like you may be able to hear a bit of work going on in the background there, but... Um, there's a roof garden here that the Laggy Centre opened up a number of years ago. It's feeding like over 100 families. They've got a um, sort of like a water system that that waters the plants. And it's kind of a big polytunnel. And just right before we arrived here, there a couple of weeks ago, the soldiers fired so much tear gas in, went through the polytunnel, destroyed all of the crops. Like there's no justification for it. There's no way you can say that, oh, well, there must have, there's something must have happened, blah, blah, blah. It's just... It's just downright oppression and everything like that. The, that the really kind of uh, army and the authorities can throw at the people around here. It's to make life difficult as difficult as possible, and the resistance then is in rebuilding. As soon as that happens, right now, like at this very minute, they're building a cage over the polytunnel to protect it from the tear gas. There's a there's a similar kind of a net over the side of the side court, just outside the centre, and. Um, so yeah, I suppose there's there's the two sides of it. There is the like space and resources and the freedom to take part in things like that and cultural things and in things that, that have got to do with health and all are very limited over here. So there is that aspect of trying to help with with that and, and to be able to provide that kind of thing. 
but it's it's also much deeper than that uh, when you put it in the context of what's happening around the place here. Yeah, we, we're just looking at some pictures that you have. Um, there's climbing ropes, there's a climbing wall, there's there's a space for a class in the gym that you built. The, the struggle to get the equipment in, that was a real thing as well when we were talking to you the last time. So obviously you managed to get enough in to be able to begin the process of having a, an active working gym. Yeah, we've got the gym that we have in Cork that's been open since 2013. There's basically everything that we have in Cork is here as well. And we're waiting on another delivery of gear to arrive today. And it's just that's all thanks to just the hard work of the crew that, that, that we're a part of here. And also the very generous support that we've received from like hundreds of people. We've got a GoFundMe campaign. Uh, it's called the Ackley Palestine Project. And there's been nearly 600 people have donated to that. And that's not including the people who give us um, supported us just by giving us kind of money to, to come over with and things like that outside of the campaign. So it's been really amazing to get the support from people. And I, I suppose like one thing that's kind of struck me on this trip out here is that we, there have been a lot of clashes and a lot, a lot of um, attacks by the army in and around the camp. And anyone who's following our Instagram page, it's at Ackley underscore Palestine, will see some of that footage. Like we've had more messages of people saying, oh, fair pity is for documenting this, lads, and well done, and guys are doing great work. But like for us, like it's only a teensy thing for us in, to, to do that in relation to what people actually go through here on a daily basis. So while we're really appreciative of the messages, messages of, of support towards our crew, what I would really encourage people to do is to get behind the project by chipping into the GoFundMe. And there's a, a lot of people have been asking how they can get involved in things in Palestine. And... Um, the Ladies Centre here have got a summer camp that's running from the 1st to the 14th of August. And that's a like really, really good way to come and learn like from just the people here and go and visit different organisations and get a real feel for what's happening on the ground. So, um, yeah, but otherwise, other, other than that, like the gym is going really well. Like there's kindergarten class in this morning. There was a women's class in this morning. There's going to be another session on later on in the day, a circus class for, for the older kids. And uh, it's really great to be a part of it. It's brilliant to be back here after such a long time and to be able to just stay for a little bit longer and just get stuck in and be a part of the team here. On the summer camp, are, are you saying they're actually actively looking for volunteers to go over? Yes. The summer camp that runs in the Ladgy Centre here is open to people to apply for it. They can go to the Ladgy Centre's website. We'll post the link to the summer camp in our uh, Instagram uh, bio as well if people want to check it out that way but the the real value of coming over the summer camp is you get to do something useful like kind of uh, help with the work around the Lazi Centre you get to go around to different groups and learn what's happening in Palestine and for like my sense for people that are, that are over here that's a big part of the kind of support that the Palestinians needed they need people to come over from Ireland and different places see what's happening learn about it from them and then go back and share the stories like that's what we're doing that's why we're spending so much time sharing things on social media we want people to see what's happening over here and we're just very fortunate that we have got such a like our crew that run this project the Irish crew like a small crew like we've got Patter uh, who's uh, taking drone footage as part of the film that we're making about the project Shiva Brock was over who's a singer released a single Shiva released her last single Kriva while we were here and just outside the window here there was there was jeeps outside tear gas was flying the place was on fire people were getting shot and she was over here doing the music classes Sally McMonagall was over organised a collection of digital cameras to bring over and she was running uh, photography classes for the kids and going into the camp and kind of helping to develop those skills and um, 
and she's the one who's been taking the majority of the photographs that people will see on the on the Instagram account. But I think that that's a real uh, testament to the how much the crew that we're a part of believe in what we're doing here, and the opportunity is there for people to do that as well. They like come over and learn, and then see where you might be able to apply your skills, and then to do something useful because. At the end of the day, like sharing things on social media and saying well done and all, it's it's good to get the support. But what people of Palestine need is for us people in Ireland to, to, to take some kind of action and do something. And we all have our own kind of particular skill set. So that's that's really what it comes down to, really. I think is the not to do things with the eye of like with through the lens of charity, but to do things through the lens of solidarity. And at the end of the day, that's what this project is all about. It's just about being here and being a, being a part of the crew here and doing whatever we can to um, to help with uh, the help with the work that's going on here already. Yeah, well, it's it's obviously a great job. It's working out for you guys, and I think you're doing a great job in in telling people that story. That it and it's a great line that it is about solidarity, not charity. And so, if anybody wants to get involved, they can donate to the GoFundMe, and on the Instagram page is where the link for if they want to apply for uh, the summer school. Is that the best place to send people? Yeah, they can check out the Lodgy Centre's Instagram as well. It's just at Lodgy Centre. Lodgy Centre have a website and we'll put the link to the summer camp into the bio of our Instagram, uh, Instagram account as well. All right. Anla, great to talk to you again. Thanks a million for making the time for us. Les, thanks very much. All the best. No worries. That's uh, Anla Carolan, the uh, Ackley Gym in the Lodgy Centre in uh, a refugee camp in Bethlehem, as um, we heard there. And it's definitely worth uh, checking out if you're interested and you might be available in the summer, then I'm sure that would be a life-changing experience for many people. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what's coming up between now and uh, 7 o'clock this evening on OTB Sports Radio, which you can get on the OTB Sports app. At 1 o'clock, it's OTB Gold, Sonia Sullivan, the Koi Gig Pod from 3. Our retro panel is How to Fail Better. Very Bacadian. Uh, OTB Gold is Manu Petit at 6 o'clock and OTB tonight live with Joe from 7 up next we're talking Champions League with Graham Hunter keep an eye on the ads for Ruth Fahey and Karen Duggan on the latest episode of the Koi Gig podcast Neve Fahey was this week's special guest OTB AM right you're very welcome back time for us to turn our attention to the Champions League it is the second leg of Real Madrid and Paris Saint-Germain I'm delighted to say Graham Hunter is with us Graham good morning to you hi lads these uh, football matches that we've been seeing over the last couple of years with these super teams is as good as as football has ever been. I mean, I know I'm a prisoner of the, the moment, but am I right in saying that? It feels that way. I think that you can you can begin to construct a pound-for-pound pound argument on what you've said. So, for example, the, the two ties where Paris Saint-Germain eliminated Bayern Munich uh, the other season were sensational. I think it depends how far back you want to go because, for example... We've got tonight Leo Messi back here in the, champ- the Champions League uh, anthem in the Bernabeu for the first time since 2011. Those two semi-finals, I'm not sure if Boston and Rumited constitute the super clubs that you're talking about. Maybe you're beginning to talk about you know, the way in which City and, and Chelsea and Paris Saint-Germain have been constructed. I don't know, take, you know. You pay your money, you take your pick. But those two semi-finals um, were absolutely extraordinary. And in terms of the Paris Saint-Germain Manchester City uh, tie, I, I, Paris Saint-Germain, um, I'm certain that will be last season on the route to City tearing up in, in the, the final and losing to Chelsea. I, I don't think we saw the absolute best of Paris Saint-Germain. And that's one of the things that I I think 
we'll see tonight. You know, Paris Saint-Germain embarrassed themselves after the second time this season against Nice at the weekend. But if you look at the side, um, some key players have been given a rest for today. Donnarumma's back in goals. You have to be careful how you flavour, you know, a broth like this by saying it's all about the subplot. So Neymar and Messi against Real Madrid, Messi back at Bernabeu, Mbappé playing against the club that still remain favourites to sign. All these things add to the story once the actors really claim the stage and you can preview it. But on the night, it's going to be about speed of thought and um, how well, in, in microseconds, the slower team, uh, which is Real Madrid, physically the slower team, and probably in terms of speed of thought, still the slightly slower team, how quickly, how well they make microsecond decisions. And, and this is the possibility of being uh, an, an epic tie in, in the you know in the genre, in the bracket that you talked about. And um, I go there tonight, pretty sure that Madrid are second favourites, not just in the tie, but on the night, but also pretty sure that it's Madrid, it's the Bernabeu. <laughs> they can do it. Uh, what's interesting, like in, in this whole kind of element of Mbappe and his potential relationship, his potential future relationship at Real Madrid is is the, the slight twist, certainly to my eyes earlier this week, um, when David Ornstein reported that Real Madrid also wants uh, Erling Haaland on, on top of Kylian Mbappe. Obviously, you'd, you'd have your Tabas coming out a couple of weeks ago saying it'd be great to have one in Barcelona, one in Real Madrid. And Real Madrid said it, maybe, or they don't say, but it's been suggested that maybe they'll wait till Benzema is gone before bringing Haaland in. So does that actually make this a, a far from credible situation that'll actually transpire in reality? No, I mean, listen, I, I don't know what language I can use in your breakfast show there, Owen, but, you know, bollocks to David Ornstein. We've, had, we've talked about that on this show weeks and weeks and weeks ago, um, simply because it's an absolute stated, um, clear wish of Florentino Perez to, to sign them both. Um, that's not a new piece of reporting. It's not a new idea. This is a man who grew up um, with uh, Puskas and Di Stefano Trento up front, watching that team, being beguiled by that team. This is a man who came to power in 2000 with the Figo deal, going the Galactico era, the Galactico ideas. Back, signed so many Galacticos that he, he ran out of Galacticos and signed Michael Owen instead, which didn't work. <laughs> Um, that wasn't quite as acidic as I meant as it sounded, but he did. He did literally ran out of Galacticos. Now there's a really clear situation, which is either Haaland and Mbappe, who, who who will both move. I think you know Paris Saint Germain are doing the most extraordinary. Um, uh, how would you call it? Financial gymnastics to try and find a way to keep Mbappe but I find it hard to believe that League One is going to satisfy him I find it hard to believe that with the whole world queuing up for these two players Mbappe chooses to stay at Paris Saint-Germain I, I don't I don't see that Haaland is clearly set on leaving Dortmund therefore there's, there are two scenarios there are you know one somebody some lucky uh, team puts the two of them together at centre forward and at left sided attack coming in and everybody else in theory, if there's a good team behind them, should just 
sort of set up for second place, I think, over the coming years. Um, or the, or Florentino Perez um, fails in that idea because I don't think there's anybody else who has the the idea to, to unite the two of them or the resources to unite the two of them. Chelsea clearly spectacularly dropped out of any race recently. And if there are two different clubs, then what you've got in both in in, in marketing terms is, is a new Cristiano Leo Messi um, look at the two greats. But also the, the two guys are so different in attitude, in, in playing style. And, you know, what I get the impression is that Haaland is 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 dithering over the idea of do I want to oppose Mbappe? Do I want to be part of an idea whereby the money at the two clubs that he gets, I get is pretty similar. You know, I get super wealthy. The resources behind us at you know any one of three or four different clubs. There's only four clubs in the race, I think. You know, in in ascending order, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, and then at the top of the tree, Real Madrid and Manchester City. The playing resources are going to be even-ish until you come to Barcelona, where you have to take a leap of faith because it's not even at the moment. And therefore, you know there is a scenario whereby Haaland and Mbappe are playing for the Real Madrid next season. And, but there is also, and I think it's important to say that the the tom tom drums coming out of. Mbappe's um, fairly large entourage, an entourage that Pochettino was a little bit withering about yesterday in his press conference, and and saying something I think is important, separating Mbappe, who's extremely bright, extremely uh, achievement-oriented, not just money-oriented, extremely articulate, multilingual, separating out the entourage around him, which has gained quite a lot of ignominy over the last 18, 20 months. I think that one of the things that we're assured of now is that the, the, the debacle in Paris, you know, the absolutely stinking way in which Real Madrid played didn't impress Mbappe. And those, Leonardo and also the owner at Alcalapi, at Paris Saint-Germain, who, who were trying to keep him, trying to retain him, trying to make him renew, said, is that what you want? Do you want to be playing at that, you know, Pace. Look how you know low they played in the pitch. It's all speculative counterattacks. They couldn't pass to one another. All of those criticisms of of Real Madrid were completely legitimate. I can't remember if I've spoken to you two since that game, but Madrid were atrocious. Yeah, and and they betrayed themselves. So they 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 will be expected to fight back tonight and put something different in. Like, is the manager going to change and ask him to go out and try and attack, yeah. attack, attack? The, the, the things have changed in Ancelotti which is one of his many bountiful pluses as far as um, not just if you're a reporter but if you if you play for him he tells things as they are he, he enjoys his work he still treats it as a multi-millionaire pastime rather than uh, you know state secrets or NASA and, and he was really frank after that uh, game he said I got the 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 tactics wrong we applied the tactics I chose badly we let ourselves down Real Madrid can't play like that he didn't talk about the result which was you know a very late Mbappe winner and they were going to get away for you know burglary of the century and since then he's talked a lot about um, Pintus his um, Italian fitness conditioner having taken a really under his instructions a really risky decision which is to spend two weeks 
putting in really hard physical work, a top-up, which in mid-season can go badly wrong. You can suddenly get dozens of little um, muscle fatigue injuries if you do a mini boot camp in mid-season. But they have. Ancelotti has said significantly after the Paris match, we're going to play forward again. We're going to play. We're going to press. We higher at the pitch. We can advance the back line. We're going to go back to what we were doing at the at the beginning of the season. We'd lost our weight a little bit. So you're, the answer to your question is yes, but he's been. But Paris Saint Germain know this, and because he's been absolutely crystal clear about both aspects: the where they play on the pitch and the degree of energy that they have to put into their pressing. The, the other major subplot at the moment is about who the next Man United manager is going to be and whether or not Pochettino is in the frame for that, whether or not he wants it, whether or not they want him, all that kind of stuff that's going on. I'm very interested in your take on this, right? Because there's been a, a bubbling under. Anytime, anytime Paris Saint-Germain don't win games 4-0, um, I read these kind of crisis at Paris Saint-Germain and then I check the table and I'm like, maybe I've got the wrong table here. Maybe the... Maybe there's like a, a, an alternative reality where the league on table actually has them, you know, neck and neck with Paris or with Nice or a couple of points behind. But like the league is over and it's been over for months. So those results don't actually matter a huge amount when it comes to assessing whether or not Pochettino is a very good manager. But there's definitely a campaign from some, I don't know what's driving the campaign to go, oh, Pochettino's not good enough for the Man United job. He's not qualified for the Man United job. He's failing in Paris. And... I just don't. I don't really see the evidence no, for that, Jerry. That's a complicated Molotov cocktail you've thrown at me there. Because number one, and this is again the reason that for twenty years now I've enjoyed coming on and, and talking to you, is that there are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers, so many media that that you know couldn't tell their backside from their elbow, and so many media that are now including, oh wait, the climate outside. Uh, by which they mean social media says so that there's a lot of horse you know written spoken one thing that I think I'm arguing is can be differentiated from that is that around Paris Saint-Germain particularly from the owner but also the media that report on them there's an expectation that they can be like Bayern at their best and they're not so Bayern at their best rip domestic teams, and I'm talking over my lifetime, reach points where they're utterly nationally dominant, which Paris Saint-Germain aren't. They weren't even champions last season. Um, yet, the gap at the top is is good, but knocked out of the cup in a pretty paltry eight-stone weakling way. They lost to Nice um, again at the weekend, which they shouldn't be doing. And the dissatisfaction that I think you're detecting that does not reflect on his potch a good coach or not a good coach is about we want to be behemoths we want to be the Bismarck we want to smash rivals and they aren't you're right I think to differentiate it's a slightly dif- dysfunctional club I think Pochettino is, was, was, had no voice in how the team was assembled last summer and I told you that I interviewed him as the messy deal was going through I was talking to him he, he was he, he was enthusiastic about it. He was bewildered about how he was going to manage to get all the the, the um, unit parts of the force to, to blend together, to self-sacrifice. He was unsure about whether um, the front three would do any of the work that he likes a front three to do, other than be brilliant and score goals when they're all fit. So he, he has a... It, it sounds counterintuitive, 
But when you're given charge of a club like that and you're not given charge of the recruitment and you're dumped a Harlem Globetrotter side, then whether you're a good coach or not, and he is, occasionally the side will play like the Harlem Globetrotters and they might entertain or they might not have the day. And occasionally the bell will ring and you'll be like, oh, look at that. And that might be tonight. Is it better for... So say, say there's a, a group of Manchester United who do want Pochettino. Is it better for them if he loses and goes out early or if he actually wins the tournament and thinks he can ride off into the sunset? I think either way, he has an argument about going to his uh, employers and saying, I want to leave. You win the trophy and you probably get a walking pass if you request it. You go out having had the chance to put a cricket score at Parc de Prince, you're out of the cup and the league's a procession from now to May, then I think he's he's gone. But I think we can be crystal clear about the fact that as it stands right now, Pochettino doesn't want to be Paris Saint-Germain coach next season. The conditions aren't right. He's not particularly enjoying himself. Now, that doesn't mean that if he's got an analytic... And I am not telling you that I know what he thinks about Manchester United. I'm not saying that. But if he has an analytical eye, there are similarities about the way that Manchester United is run on a day-to-day basis that might make me think, oh, fire, uh, frying pan. So I don't know if he gets that. And and to be honest with you, there's another scenario, which is if Paris Saint-Germain cut loose tonight and really put this tie away, if they do, which they did at Camp Nou last season, and one by three, then I think Ancelotti, having been booked... Uh, by Florentino Perez three weeks ago. We'll see a second yellow and won't be there and Pochettino will take over in, uh, this summer. And for my analytical eye, okay. the best scenario for Pochettino is to be Madrid coach from this summer. It is It is definitely a better job than the Manchester United job at the moment and it's not even close. That's right, because the squad is very good. It's been reasonably well constructed. The stadium is just about finished. It's paid for. Um, you're working in an environment where in terms of team completion, particularly if Mbappe is added, there's not masses of work to be done. Um, it's a country whereby he functions probably much more easily than working in French. Um, it's a club that he aspires to work at. It's a club that tried to get him when he renewed his contract at Spurs um, and Zidane walked out after the Liverpool Champions League final. And Pochettino was told directly by Jose Angel Sanchez, the vice president, if you had a get-out clause at Spurs, if you built that into your contract, you would be this summer, you'd already be Madrid manager. So there's a feeling of um, a, a circle being complete. There would be a feeling of, because none of this is, is outright fact. But there, if you want to game it, if you want to hypothesise, knowing what Florentino Perez is like, um, Ancelotti ha- has has his not quite his back against the ropes but another display like Parc de France and he won't be the, the coach next season and Pochettino feels to my mind to be a, a, an old desire which football often tries to fulfil often there's a big pattern of that and secondly probably the right guy That is really interesting because it certainly adds another layer of uh, subtext to everything that's happening tonight it sounds like you think they probably will open up tonight that they are the, the class of this field this evening and that Paris Saint-Germain are going to go through I think they should have won by three or four in the first leg it's a slightly different Madrid but there's no Mondi 
that's crucial. Mondi at left back in terms of physical power, aerial power, um, the way in which he links with Vinicius down the left touchline, his speed, um, his ability to combat the speed that we're likely to see from Mbappe, Neymar, Messi. Speed of decision-making in Messi's case rather than speed of um, sprint. Um, no Casemiro. Casemiro hasn't had a vintage couple of months, um, but he was brilliant the last time they played sort of like five, six brutal games in 18 days and, and they won them all. He's out, suspended. His Again, his his street smarts, his height, power, just experience that both of them are missing and that Kroos is, is, a, is a fitness test today and also one of your slower footballers. Brilliant on the ball. But if he's run past, if he's jostled and bullied, Dutch referee, um, if you forgive my little joke, he's going to occupy the McKelly position and he's permissive. He allows teams to play Northern European football. That doesn't suit Real Madrid at all. It, it's the case that... It, it, I, I'm just going to say it. There are certain clubs and certain grounds where ridiculous things happen. This is Madrid. They they think the trophy belongs to them. It's the Bernabeu. They're going to be... If they don't concede early, the roar, the noise will give wings to the players. But if you sat down and looked at this match in an actuarial way, Paris Saint-Germain win tonight and go through. The beauty of football, the reason we spent so much time talking about it is, well, who knows? That's why we play the games. Graham, great stuff. Thanks a million. Enjoy it. Lads. Graham Hunter there giving us some thoughts uh, about many different aspects of tonight's game. We hope that has suitably whet your appetite. If you want to get in touch with us, you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream and you really should subscribe to Off The Ball uh, our YouTube channel you just hit the subscribe button um, right tomorrow morning Ron McGarr live in studio as we look ahead as well to the weekend's Gaelic football the Champions League reaction and much more as well OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day I should have mentioned a little bit earlier on that the latest episode of the Koi Gig Pod is available right now to listen to we heard uh, Ruth Fahey talking with uh uh, Ruth and Karen this week talking with Nia Fahey, the uh, Liverpool captain. Uh, that is all uh, brought to you by Cadbury, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland uh, women's football team. And you can get Koi Gig wherever you get your podcasts. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.